See, you know what the funny thing is, is you're a Zen triathlon, and I am like the Antichrist of Zen. Oh, yeah? I mean, I race on passion, rage, anything I can find fuel on. And that is just a small preview of this week's guest, America's record holder for the fastest Ironman professional triathlete, Andrew Starkowitz. All right, let's get started with the show. Here we go. You are listening to Zen and the Art of Triathlon. Alright, welcome to another great episode of Zen and the Art of Triathlon, the podcast where we give you tons of tips and tricks on how to become a Zen master in the art of endurance sports and triathlon. Alright, like we heard at the top of the show, we have pro triathlete Andrew Starkowicz. This is really cool because I recorded this about two weeks before his uh, big event, Ironman Texas, is coming up. And we have a great interview. It's about an hour long. And, you know, there's lots of reasons to get Andrew on. He's uh, very opinionated and he's absolutely awesome. And he's just a great interview all the way around. And he's an Uber biker. So I get to ask all kinds of questions about how he has his bike set up. But also, he's a fantastic swimmer and runner. And we go into how he became that way and how he trains. So there's just lots going on there. It's really cool. And then after the interview, I go into how I won the local Grand Fondo, a 100-mile bike race we had here in town. And I went all out trying to win that thing. And I succeeded. So I thought I'd share all my tips and tricks that I used to have a very successful uh, 100 it was 101, I think, uh, 101.5 mile ride, and a lot of it is usable in Ironman racing. So let's uh, get to that after we cover some triathlon news. Here we go. All right, first up, pro triathlete Jesse Thomas has now won Wildflower six times. That is a crazy difficult race. I did it, I think, back in 2007, and I was surprised. Surprise, surprise, surprise. I was blown away by how hard that race was, and he won it now the sixth time against competition that is pretty stacked. Uh, Terenzo Bazzoni is in there. I think Terenzo got second, and that Terenzo is incredible especially at this distance. It's a, Wildflower is a half Ironman distance race. They have a bit of an issue with the lake. Um, a bit of an issue. A major issue with the lake. The uh, swim has to... You have to do the swim and then run two miles to the transition area because the lake is dried up so much. That's where they go swim. It's, it's either way down at the end of the lake or another lake uh, or an arm of the lake uh, nearby. And... Um, it's just absolutely incredible. So check it out. Uh, I think on tririg.com, there's an expo photo series on Jesse Thomas's bike and how he has it set up. So go check that out. And yeah, that's pretty cool. And actually, he's been on this show uh, one time. Um, I asked him all about the Aviator sunglasses that is his trademark. He's a really cool guy. So a big fan of Jesse Thomas. So congratulations on that. And... 
Let's see. Iron Man has now said that they're going to do inspections on bikes uh, for mechanical doping. And I remember when this popped up, uh, just, gosh, was it last fall or over the winter? Oh, yeah, when cyclocross racing was going on and a girl got caught uh, with a a battery and a motor in her bike. And I was in a discussion with other people saying, this is really, really serious. You could easily hide this in your bike and uh, do triathlons this way. And you're out, uh, you know, on the Ironman course and you just uh, have it help you with a few hills. And the next thing you know, you've got way better legs for running because you didn't have to exert yourself on the bike so much. And I got boohooed a little bit like, oh, come on, you know, it's not, it's not really out there. And boy, is it out there enough where Ironman is going to, um, going to inspect bikes. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what they've decided on how they're going to do it. Um, triathlons might be a little bit easier to do it because in triathlons, you're not allowed to switch out bikes. So the bike you end up in T2 with should be the bike that you started off with. And so they'll be able to inspect it in T2 and see if there's any, um, any batteries or motors in there. So yes, thank you. Also Ironman Texas, which we're going to go in in detail with Andrew here in a little bit, uh, has had major problems with flooding and the bike course and permitting. It's just ridiculous what's going on, uh, with the whole situation and, uh, the bike course that they've settled on lately, uh, is short by a good portion, maybe 18 miles. And, uh, so many people are so upset about that because it's, there's a threshold apparently of, you know, an Ironman can be a few miles short or a few miles long and people don't mind one way or the other. Um, but then when it, when it hits a critical mass, enough people will go, what? That is not an Ironman now. And so, uh, yeah, it's like a 94 mile bike ride and the, um, the Ironman, the WTC, which owns Ironman has said that they are going to let people transfer to another race and it's all pretty much over by now, but this was far later than what they usually allow people to transfer. They said, we hear you. Some people are upset. Okay. We'll let people transfer to another race. Um, but there's all like the fine print. It's kind of like, uh, uh, blackout dates when flying <laughs> with airline miles. There's only particular races and particular times and stuff, but, uh, that was pretty interesting that, that they, uh, bowed, on that one. And let's see, uh, the last thing is I've got some Uberman crew starting to get together. I think I've got, uh, four people that are in to help out. Uberman is in October, October 20th. Uh, we swim from Catalina Island to shore and that's a 21 mile swim. And then we're going to bike 400 miles over the mountain ranges to death Valley. And then we're going to run the Badwater 135. I think there's like eight of us that are in it so far and I obviously need crew for that. And even the crew is going to need crew to, uh, to take breaks, uh, with all that. And I'm not really planning on biking through the night. I think that's a good way to break your neck or get hit by a car and, you know, use the latest part at night to, um, catch some Z's and refresh because biking 400 miles is one thing, but biking 400 miles after swimming 21 and before you're uh, going to run 135 is um, 
uh, man, you take a break. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Pull over and take a nap and eat, or else you're not going to be able. You're not, if you make it to the run, your uh, legs are going to fall off. So I saw that there's a guy in it that has done the arch to arch, which is uh, something in London to the English Channel, swim the English Channel, and then bike to the uh, the Arch de Triomphe in um, in Paris, however you say it, in Francais. And uh, yeah, so that's uh, pretty cool. All right, I think that's all of the news. I don't want to wait too long on the Andrew Starkey show. I, uh, or my son, uh, and my son calls him the real, real Starkey. <laughs> Andrew will like that, hopefully, if he's listening to this. And it's just super cool to have Andrew on. I'm really stoked. And of course, after the interview, uh, we're gonna have a little bit of cool training music and then go right into some other stuff. All right, here we go. Welcome to the next level. Hey, Andrew. How are you? Doing good, man. How are you? I'm doing good. How's everything in the Zen world? (laughs) Uh, Either very Zen or very un-Zen, working towards all the time. So what what have you been doing today? I uh, got up, got my daughter ready, uh, dropped her off at my parents' house for the day, and then went and swam. Oh, cool. That's one of the things I wanted to ask you about. Uh, you get so much uh, attention for your bike riding, but uh, you swam at Purdue, right? No, I did not. Oh, I thought you swam in college or? No, I did not swim in college. Oh, well, but you played water polo? Yes, I did. Oh, uh, okay. Which makes for awesome skills at the uh, mass start, <laughs> I imagine. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it definitely helps. It helps for sure. Uh, just being comfortable with people swimming around you, on top of you, uh, and uh, just it really the biggest advantage is, is it's not really at the mass start. It's, you know, when you get into the swim and the person next to you you don't like uh-huh. yet how they swim, you feel like they're kind of pushing you out of a pack or they're just kind of swimming all over, that you can subtly move that person. Yeah. Uh, without, you know, without swimming over them. You know, you could just literally just in one stroke, just slide across their back and, you know, they, they'll, they'll notice it, but it's not like you drowned them. And, right. uh, I mean, other guys that are good swimmers notice that and it's like, okay, that, that's fine. Yeah. Uh, and you're not, you're not getting the classic age grouper who suddenly it goes vertical and then all of a sudden is swinging. Right. Yeah. Like an escalation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you watch. I, I wish. I really wish they would sit. Uh, and Brandon, now we can do it better than we could before because before you needed a helicopter, and now uh, we got drones everywhere. It seems yeah. at these races. But you can, if you just hovered over like a like an ITU race or a um, a very competitive Olympic distance or half distance race, you will see just music in motion uh, at the pro level. Uh, guys, just. Guys just really are able to maneuver around a lot more than people realize, and they do it without without negatively affecting their other competitors, which right. is the exact opposite of what happens in the age group field, which when people start moving around, they start pulling on other people. And, and granted, I mean, it's happened a few times to me, but I race a lot, and most of the time it's just, you know, guys just moving around within the pack. Right. Yeah, I, I grew up on... Uh, really competitive swim teams and also uh, at the neighborhood pool and with an older brother just kind of like beating the crap out of each other in the pool all the time and right. lots of rough housing and stuff and uh, also uh, did a lot of surfing and 
that background, awesome. I wish my high school had a water polo team. I would have loved it because I played basketball too, and that, that would have been a nice combination. And the uh, yeah, I find that when I get start getting crowded with people, I'm not. It doesn't bother me that much. I just kind of kind of crowd them back a little bit, and then they they give you some space without having to resort to swimming on top of. Something. Right. So yeah, I totally get it, man. So where where did you get your swim background from, though? Um, I developed it over the course of four years in high school. I didn't grow up swimming. Uh-huh. Uh, the first time I swam competitively or even went off the blocks, I was uh, a freshman in high school and oh, uh, swam a uh, something like a thirty second or th- a thirty six second or thirty eight second fifty. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> and that was that, you know that was freshman year of high school, yeah, and by okay. uh, senior year, I was uh, all American. So, uh, yeah. You know, I, de- I developed, uh, I had a lot of great coaches who really just push and impress technique in, into my skull. And uh, that's why, uh, I, I mean, largely I credit them for how I race because it's, I'm, you know, I'm emphatic with thinking about technique and granted people probably walk, look at my run and it's like, yeah, there's not much technique there, but uh, I'm working on it. Well, where did you go to high school? I went to high school uh, up in Northern Illinois at Stevenson. Oh, okay. Yeah. But was it, did, were you able to go right on the varsity swim team or did you JV? Were they that big? Oh, I was, I was freshman, man. I was yeah. freshman swim team. And I was, uh, I mean, I, I wasn't even, I wasn't even good enough to swim at the JV meets, uh, <laughs> until the end of my freshman year. Right. But they let you swim with them though, right? Pick it up. and. Um, well, I mean, they had, uh, basically our team had, I think we had four or five levels or four or five different coaches. Oh, um, that's pretty cool. and I was at the lowest level all the way through most of my freshman year. And then at the end of the year, I, you know, made, I, I had just a really good end of the season. And then, you know, I joined a club team and really improved, uh, logging yards, long course meters over the summer and yeah. just, uh, yeah, just kind of went from there. Yeah, we had um, JV and varsity in high school, and I barely qualified. I remember my older brother, he just walked onto the team when he was a junior. Okay. Uh, he got cut from the basketball team, and so he'd been swimming uh, summer league swim team, you know, just neighborhood stuff. Right. And he made JV, or he made varsity, and uh, immediately his next year, team captain. And then he went to um, Lake, you know where Lake Forest College yeah. is? Yeah. My brother was a swim team captain at Lake Forest. Oh, really? And then I... Uh, I got an offer to swim there too. I ended up going to England, Texas. But um, my brother lives in Chicago, and I lived in Chicago two summers working construction on the Sears World Headquarters. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Hoffman Estates. Hoffman Estates. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So I kind of know uh, the area that. Uh, yeah. So um, on on your running, you you hold the overall fastest record for an American at seven fifty five. I think for yep. for an Ironman and. Um, which means you've got the all around, you know, the swim and the, I, it says on your stats that you weigh about 180 pounds is about what I weigh too. And I'm I'm reading that going, how in the hell do you run that fast at 180 pounds? Like blows my mind. So like what kind of run training do you, and how do you survive like a marathon? Do you have like strategies for like bigger guys or anything? Uh, my biggest strategy is don't run on pavement. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I do almost, I do most of my, I do nearly exclusively uh running on crushed limestone trails um uh, granted you know every once in a while there's a couple sections a mile here a mile there but i mean nearly all my running is uh crushed limestone trail soft surface running uh i do a lot of you know dirt trails a lot of just i mean soft surface it's 
uh, I mean, you talk to a lot of people and you tell them to go, you know, run around soccer fields and they're like, what is so slow? You know, I mean, you get on the pavement and you go so much faster, but, uh, I mean, for being a heavier guy, it's just, it's, it's softer on your joints and you know, granted you don't get to push off the explosion that you do on pavement and, but, uh, being able to run on soft surfaces just preserves your body. So but on race day, you're having to run at a really fast. Do you train at that sometimes? You're familiar oh, yeah. with it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I mean, if you can run, I mean, granted, uh, some of the, uh, you know, you get some gravel sections that are really well packed. Uh, and you can you can very much simulate uh, uh, race pacing faster, much, much faster. Uh, very similar to race day, but it's just a softer surface. I mean, it's, it, I mean, a lot of the a couple of surfaces I run on are basically very similar to the old cinder tracks that uh, they used to race on. Yeah. But I forgot to ask you, uh, backing up a little bit, how did you get into triathlon at all? Uh, you've been a pro since around 2006, right? Yeah. Uh, I got in, uh, just after high school on a bad bet. Uh, <laughs> one of my buddies bet that he could beat me in a triathlon and, uh, yeah. you know, I told him, sure, whatever. And, uh, and he, he egged me on for a couple of years. He was on the swim team also, but he also ran cross country. And, uh, I mean, I did soccer and, uh, soccer, swimming and water polo. So I, mean, I he, he, tr- he kept trying to get me to do it. And finally, uh, yeah, just being, being a good friend, he convinced my mom to do it. And, you know, if one of your friends is doing it and your mom's doing it in high school, you're, Mm-hmm. You end up doing it, and uh, so I did it, uh, and I mean, I didn't do another one for a year or two, and then uh, uh, in college, I started doing them much more seriously, and that sophomore year of college, I picked it up again. Oh, okay. So did you have any biking background where you got into it at all? Yeah, I mean, I raced uh, in college, I, the, the, I raced uh, cycling in the spring and played water polo in the fall. Oh, so, oh, so uh, you've got some at least coll- collegiate-level background like how to train on the bike, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, I raced, I raced cycling uh, from probably '99 until. Uh, I mean, I got into cycling when I, while I was still swimming very seriously, uh-huh. uh, and then uh, pretty much before triathlon. Uh, actually, right about the start, right about the time I got into triathlon, I really got into cycling. But '98, uh, '99, I started riding uh, just before the whole Lance Armstrong boom of people riding their bikes. And, uh, I raced all the way through. And then in 2006, I kind of had to, uh, make it when I'm, when I went pro in triathlon, I had to make a decision of how serious I wanted to be as a pro in triathlon, uh, or if I wanted to, you know, to escalate my, uh, cycling career. And, uh, at that fork in the road and in that time in my life, I chose triathlon over cycling. Uh, any regrets over that? You're with the triathlon choice? Loving it? No, I'm I, I'm really happy I made the choice I did. Well, what about um that first triathlon, man? Like, how did how did that end up? It, well, it went it went well. I think I finished uh, third. Oh. I think I finished third in it, uh, and I got out of the water second. And it was a wetsuit legal race, and I didn't have a wetsuit, of course, but <laughs> I got out of the water well, and then uh, you know, got on the bike and uh, just really rode well, and got off the bike in second place and got run down by somebody it was a sprint distance race but it got run down by somebody in like the final mile or so but uh yeah it was it was i don't know it was i was so new to it that i didn't know what the heck i was doing and uh it's a sprint distance race really isn't i mean at that point i was doing 
hour and a half, hour forty five minute swim practices, and, right. and this race was an hour. So it's like a it's like a blood rush. Yeah. Uh, really, you know, I didn't think about it much. I just went out there and and you know and just let my body sing. All right, let's take a break from the interview and talk a moment about our big new sponsor, Salt Stick. All right, I love this stuff because I have been doing Salt Stick and a cousin of Salt Stick, just taking uh, salt pills, which are hard to find, actually. Uh, You have to order them from the pharmacy, and then they show up, and then uh, they don't come in any kind of uh, dispenser or anything like that. You have to put them in a Ziploc and then carry that around. It turns into a real mess, man. But Salt Stick has it covered because... They are electrolyte capsules that you can uh, you can break them open if you want and then shake them into a bottle because they're just capsules. I've done that. And uh, you can take them as needed. It's really, really cool because sometimes you don't want salt. Sometimes you do need salt. But I can tell you one thing for sure. Water doesn't work without enough salt. It just doesn't. It's not sticky. So let me tell you about a cool study that scientists did on triathletes. They gave half of them salt stick caps and the other half sports drink, like Gatorade. The athletes that took salt sticks finished a 70.3 race and an average of 26 minutes faster than the control group. 26 minutes, that's absolutely crazy. So you gotta make your water stick with salt stick or else it doesn't work. That's my own tagline. I came up with it. They're going to have to run with that. All right, you can get 25% off your order of salt stick with discount code ZENTRY25, all caps. ZENTRY25. Say it. ZENTRY25. All right, and it can be used through the website shopsaltstick.com. Go check it out. 25% off. That is good. Hashtag good. Believe it. All right, let's get back to our interview. You've been recovering from an injury, and then you came in back and just totally blew away in New Orleans a weekend, a couple weekends ago. Yeah, and uh, so you had a you had a labrum tear in your hip. Yeah, I had, uh, last year I did, and yeah. uh, I had surgery on it uh, at the end of uh, 2014. Uh, I had to pull out of Hy-Vee and then pull out of uh, I you know pre race I withdrew from Hy-Vee in 2014, and I withdrew from. Um, uh, 70.3 worlds in Montreblanc and, uh, both of those hurt because I was, I was in really good shape, uh, and going into the, going into about a month, a couple weeks before it. And I just, you know, all the way through that year, all the way through 2014, I just kept getting injured and having knee, ankle, hip, uh, injuries. And, uh, just, I was compensating, uh, for what was going on in my hip. And, uh, then, uh, at Kona, I ended up, uh, while leading, it just flared up and was just causing excruciating pain. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to be able to run. And just pulled the plug, tried to stretch it out up uh, in Javi, and mm-hmm. then just soft pedal at home just because it was just excruciating pain. And I went through some, uh, I went through some physical therapy afterwards, and just just to try to get, because you know, they just thought it was uh, muscle imbalance or something or another, mm-hmm. and. Because the uh, the MRI didn't show anything, so then we did a uh, MRI with dye, and at the end of uh, or about uh, the beginning of November, and it showed that there's a, there's a, a small spur on my uh, on my the head of my, my femur tearing into my labrum, and wow. it just I mean it made shredded meat of the top of the labrum, and uh, 
so I had to have surgery and spent all of spent all of uh, last spring, um, 2015 spring, just recovering from that. And I uh, came out, tried to race well at uh, Roth, and it was just too much load too soon. Mm-hmm. Raced, raced pretty well at uh, – finished third uh, right behind Lionel and uh, Matt Charbeau at uh, 70.3 Racine in July uh, last year. And uh, that, was, that was a pretty good feeling, uh, you know, just being able to come back from an injury like that and then yeah. just to be competitive. Now, how, do you, how do you keep sane when – I mean your whole – your whole world revolves around training and racing, and now I mean, like, were you were you able to bike at all, or you had to do nothing with your? You were able to. I, one of the first things you can do is they want you biking, and oh, cool. that's cool. so yeah. they call that therapy. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, it was therapy. I mean, from <laughs> I'm gonna therapy crazy. the fuck out of this. <laughs> hey, sorry, I lost you there for a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. Generally, it's me that loses it because you know I, I you know, I'm waiting for a. Uh, a check to clear from uh, one of the race directors to uh, pay the bills. You know? Correct. Yeah. Somebody was telling me like they had to wait. Oh, it was a good friend of mine. Yeah, like eleven months. Yeah, there's some time. I mean, it's, yeah. it's gotten better over the last few years, um, but still, something often. Sometimes it's ninety days. Yeah. Uh, six weeks to ninety days. It's just it's funny. Yeah. Well, I think in today's world with all social media, you know, you can start calling them out on it. It becomes more transparent and say, hey, we're Yeah, they're really going to want you to race the races again if you uh, start calling them out on social media. Oh, that is the downside, huh? <laughs> you, you really want to bite the hand that feeds you, don't you? Yeah. So um, on the recovery, you're able to, to um, bike plenty? Yeah. Right? Yeah, I was able to. But their idea of bike is like, like they set it at 50 watts. Yeah. And it's like, they're like, okay, how does this feel? I'm like... It feels like, like uh, if I let my leg fall, it, I'm just going to rip my other leg off because at first you're just trying to be able to get your hip to move and move circulate the blood around it. And you know, yeah. granted, I'm used to doing sets of you know 150 to 175 watts single leg riding, mm-hmm. and here it is. I'm yeah, both legs, and it's 50 watts. Uh, so it, it took a lot of working together with me and the, the therapist and the doctor. Uh, it took a lot of teamwork to yeah. just keep a plan. And because they knew that if they gave me, uh, they, they showed me light that I would take as much as I could out of it. Mm-hmm. And so they really just, they did a good job of holding me back, but, you know, giving me enough that I won't go crazy. Right. Hey, you have to say like, uh, my FTP, I don't, it's like, Almost four hundred or three fifty. Define or, FTP. Uh, let's just say uh, average for an hour, all out race. Like if you did a time trial for an hour. a time trial for an hour. Yeah. What would in you a triathlon or uh, no, just, just all out? Time yeah, just time. Okay. What yeah, that think? that would hurt. No. What do you think your watts would be like that? Um, probably four fifteen, four twenty five, somewhere in there, and maybe then, a little higher. You gotta be like, man, I'm used. To, I could do four fifteen for an hour, and. Like fifty watts doesn't even register on right, right, yeah, uh, yeah. That, that's it was, but I mean, over the course, it uh, over the course of a few weeks, we advanced, and I mean, I was able to get, the, you know, they wanted me to ride thirty minutes a day, three times a day, so yeah, and then you know, gradually they, you know, we asked, we they didn't want me riding, you know, too much in a row, but uh, within a couple weeks, we were up to three one-hour rides a day day yeah uh, which which was nice i mean i mean granted that's i'm talking two months out from surgery is when we were got to that level right 
so by that point, you're looking at February 1st. Uh, I was able to ride three hours a day, but I still wasn't swimming. And most people thought, you know, oh, you could be in the pool right away. Yeah. But I mean, the, a major swim muscle, uh, I mean, you, you really don't want to engage any muscles in your hips. And even holding a pull buoy, you're engaging a lot of muscles that attach to your hip cradle. And uh, it just, Damn. it. It is a lot – This the injury is a lot more detrimental than people think yeah. uh, because uh, you can't swim, you can't bike, and you can't run for six weeks. And then you slowly – or about the time you could start walking, you could start getting back on the bike. And then swimming is still just a long way off. And then running was – I mean the thing that sucked for me is, is – but I finally got cleared for running, and when I got cleared for running, I walked into a door jam and broke my toe. <laughs> yeah. And it turns out, because I've done, I've done the broken toe thing, a big toe, it, you need your big toe, you need your toes to run. I mean, well, it hurts like a mother if your yeah. toe's broken. Well, I, wrote, I, I mean, it was a second, it was a long toe, it was a second toe. Uh-huh. And I mean, I, they said it wasn't broken, because I, I went to the doctor a few days later and got an x-ray, because my whole foot was blue. Uh-huh. And they said it wasn't broken, and then... Uh, uh, I ran on it all year, and it was just excruciating pain. Yeah, uh, all year uh, in 2015, and at the end of the year, I got a second look at it, and uh, it turns out that I had broken it uh, at an angle uh, that it was on the bottom side, where I guess you normally don't look in an X-ray. I guess I don't mm-hmm. know. And so that that's so this winter I got to spend the whole winter, and when it broke, it, two little shards had fallen out of the had had gotten out of there and they and they planted themselves just below my second metatarsal right. between my metatarsal and the ligament. Yeah. So every time I stepped it was like two teeth going into that ligament and Jeez. it just like just shrapnel. shredded just yeah. shredded the uh, ligament and so I had to take a long off season this year to uh, you know I I I, did, I had laser therapy, I had ultrasound, I had a, a massage everything just trying because you got to break down that little the bone yeah. that's there um you got to stay off it because uh, you don't want that bone to do any more damage and you got to wait for the bone to disintegrate so it just was a long long off season this year uh fortunately i was able to swim and i was able to bike easy this winter uh unlike last winter so yeah. i was i was a little bit ahead of the curve but uh i mean I was able, when I finally started running. It was I think March seven, March fifth or March seventh, and then I went out to Puerto Rico and uh, just I was like, well, I don't have the run training under me, so I did a uh, walk run there, which uh, was was kind of entertaining. Yeah, it's kind of entertaining, you know. When you start walking as the leader of the race, people are like, oh, you know, oh, good, you know, keep going, keep going. And I'm like, no, nope, this is kind of what I planned on doing. <laughs> I've had that happen where people are like, you can do it. And I'm like, I know I can't. I'm actually trying to hold back before I kill myself. Uh, right. I have a friend that um, has a hip problem or his hip joint is a little bit too loose. It's like a degenerative thing. Yeah. And yeah. he kicked it out of joint swimming. Okay. He was just swimming along and he said just all of a sudden it just popped out. And that, it took- that just made me like twinge just thinking about it yeah he said it was crazy and of course it took like two months of therapy you know and and, uh to get it back where it was supposed to be and he thought two months is is a short timeline when it comes to hip injuries oh yeah it it's two um, months is a two months i learned 
I learned when it comes to hip injuries, two mm-hmm. months is a blink. Yeah. Uh, I mean, a lot of these therapies, uh, I, I mean, I talked to uh, a lot of doctors, uh, and I, especially after the fall I had last year where I, you know, within a year after surgery, I mm-hmm. had success at, uh, you know, 70.3 in the Ironman distance uh, at the end of last year. And a lot of these doc- doctors are like, uh, yeah, you're a bad example because all of these patients that are, we are doing surgery on, we usually tell them it's two years until you get back doing, you know, get back to anywhere close to 100%. And here you are racing at this level within yeah. a year. And yeah. so I think you're, uh, they're like, elite. they're like, you're a great example, but you're a, you're a bad example. Yeah. Uh, I think elite athletes, y'all are so aware of your bodies, you know, cause you're used to feeling something and knowing that it's wrong. Well, it's just that also that we're used to breaking our bodies down and getting them to recover. Yeah. That is, I talked to so many age groupers and they're like, what's the biggest difference between, uh, training as a pro versus training as an age grouper. And I tell them training as a pro versus an age grouper, it's not that different. It's just that it seems that pros are able to go harder on hard days and, when it's a, when it's an easy day, they they're able to not not push. They're able to just sit up and ride, and yeah. they're fine with letting you know if they're ride. I mean, I'm, I enjoy riding with a bunch of uh, a bunch of people that are you know uh, that are two thirty, two forty five guys for a half. Right uh, on an easy day, I'm fine with riding for them with them. I mean, it, you want to get your heart rate down around one ten, one twenty, uh, or topping out at like one twenty on an easy day. We're I mean, I ride with so many people, and they're like, "Oh, I'm out for an easy ride." <laughs> I'm like, "Okay, if you're going easy, and I'm, I feel like I'm pushing. There's a problem." Yeah. Do you think that the it's a personality or a habit that people learn or know or just behave like, and then that allows them to become pros, or um, it's something that's taught, or like it's kind of natural? Impact? Everybody, it's different. Everybody, it's different. I mean, some people are just so naturally gifted. That it's just, uh, you know, they're so naturally gifted that, they, I mean, they don't have to train right. They don't have to eat right. They don't have to do anything right. Uh, they can just go out there and with decent training, they will, they they can compete at the top level. Uh, at the top level, I'm saying, meaning just at the professional level. Right. At, I mean, to me, there's three levels of pros, but, uh, you know, at any of those three levels of pros, they can, you know, they just are just natural athletes. Uh, where you get other people that, uh, are do it because you know they've done it for years. They've trained their body. They've trained everything right, and they've gotten to there. So you're a uh, not a new dad. You've got you've got a daughter that's like two years old by now. Uh, year and a half. Year and a half. And yeah. uh, so that's got to make uh, the whole taking time off and do therapy and recovery like a whole lot better, right? Spend time with your daughter. Oh man, it's it, it's it is and it isn't. I mean. Uh, you're a parent, you, you have to, you know, you, you feel like you have to earn a living to, Oh yeah. You know, have an opportunity for this child to grow. And, yeah. Uh, and you feel even more, you feel even worse sometimes that you can't, uh, you know, that you're not a good provider, but you can't be, uh, doing your job. Right. Uh, but other times it's when you're spending time with her, I mean, she she doesn't care what I've done or what's going on. She just wants to snuggle up against you or wants you to chase her around the house. <laughs> yeah, that's that's more what I meant. Like, um, yeah, there is the guilt thing, right? Like you're not providing or like that. But as far as the joy of having a kid around, yeah, 
Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, on the side, do you do, um, do you do any side jobs like, uh, consulting or, or coaching or anything like that to bring in extra money or you're relying totally on the, the professional athlete sponsorships and winnings and things like that? <laughs> sponsorships, <laughs> making money. That's, that's a, uh, that's a, an interesting story. Yeah. Um, the, no, I don't do any, I mean, I've, I've dabbled with coaching over the years, but really you just got to focus on racing. I mean, you look at anybody at the top level, they are a hundred percent focused on racing. Right. Uh, it's, you can't, you can't, I mean, you don't have the mental energy and the time to, to do it. Uh, and it just, it takes, I mean, training, training and racing at the top level, it just takes tons of time and tons of mental energy. And I mean, when I'm not training, I'm, uh, talking to sponsors, uh, um, keeping, keeping up with, uh, keeping up with, uh, just, you know, it's eat, sleep, train, uh, recover. And that's all, that's all I do. And then I, you know, I'll get to spend, you know, an hour at night with my, uh, wife and daughter and, go to bed and get up in the morning and do it again. Yeah. And uh, I found that when you try to take on anything more, it just, it, it doesn't work. I mean, I did it, I did it for the first four years of being pro from 2006 to 2009. I worked full time. I raced at the professional level. I got my butt thoroughly kicked every weekend that yeah. I raced. I was racing 18 times a year. And, um, then I, when I made the jump, uh, and was able to just recover more. Uh, I was able to, you know, I was able to improve a little, you know, at a at a, at a quicker rate. Mm-hmm. Um, and but I mean, granted, I never would I never would have had the financial backing to make it to the level I've gotten to had I not worked and raced for those years. And in addition, I mean, at that time, I you know, I was finishing sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth at uh, the lifetime races. And those races, you know, you got uh, $1,200, $1,800 for finishing uh, seventh, sixth, seventh, and eighth. Right. Uh, so you're paying for your trips plus, you know, a little extra, a little extra money. Yeah. And you're making $800, you know, f- five, seven times a year extra. And that's, you know, an extra four grand uh, plus all the other races you're doing. Hopefully you're break even or making a few bucks. And I mean, I look at the pros now that are younger. I mean, I just don't see how they're making it. Because uh, I mean, the races don't pay like they used to. There's not as many as races as there used to be that pay. Um, I mean, there used to be a plethora of smaller races that you know they were not pro races, but they were age group races, but still paid you know thousand fifteen hundred dollars for first place. Mm-hmm. And those just aren't those just aren't as you know they don't exist like they used. To. And uh, so it's just I, I don't I am you know I wish I wish I was maybe three years before. Where I was, yeah. uh, you know, if I had gone pro in 2003 and had, you know, granted, I mean, basically saying I wish I was born in 1979, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, I think, you know, that, that would have been, maybe I would have been financially a little better, but uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a very interesting, uh, it's very interesting looking at the sport now versus uh, 10 years ago versus uh, now 15 years ago. All right, let's take a break. I want to jump in here and talk about another sponsor of Zen Tri, Living Fuel. Living 
Fuel is awesome. Let me tell you about one of their products. Living Protein is the bomb.com. <laughs> it's a non-soy vegetarian, yellow pea, brown, rice, protein with added fiber, prebiotics, probiotics, perfect for your green smoothies that are likely missing a key macronutrient, protein, exclamation point. They put that in there because they knew I would say it. They have it in, they call it tubs, but it's these canisters with a big screw top lid. I add it to uh, my workout fuel, my recovery fuel. It is so good. I had uh, the green, uh, what do they call that green drink? I don't know. I just use it so much. I don't even look at the label anymore. The stuff is so good. I just, I keep it at work. Uh, I have a healthy fridge at work, a little micro fridge, a mini fridge, a dorm fridge. And uh, I keep, uh, carrots and apples and stuff like that around there and uh, healthy sprouted wheat bread sprouted grains bread and then also uh living fuel stuff i love it man i also did a long workout last weekend where i put a living fuel uh amino acid mix in with my uh, carbs uh, to give a little bit of protein mix to it. And um, man, it was really, really good. It worked out great. I had a great workout. So go check out livingfuel.com. They have a huge variety of different stuff. Almost all of it has some kind of fiber or healthy something uh, as the major ingredient, if not the entire ingredient. So you will definitely have a lot of choice in there going and checking them out. And they are a big supporter of Zentri. They approached us on the show, which I'm a big fan of. They listen, they support us, help them out. All right, go check out livingfuel.com. Well, I mean, you do have a kick-ass sponsor with Orbea, yeah. with that bike. That, yeah, uh, I mean, Orbea, Orca, uh-huh. Vision. I mean, you look at you look at most of my sponsors. I've been with them for uh, quite a lot of years, and there's a reason. Uh, because, I mean, I've developed great relationships with them, uh, and uh, they've been loyal to me. I've been loyal to them. And, I mean, I've, uh, I've, I've taken breaks from some of my sponsors, and, I uh, thought maybe the grass is greener on the other side, but uh, I've learned uh, out there that uh, I have the best sponsors in the sport. Uh, they're you know super supportive. They you know I work with them on development of stuff, and I mean it's really just I mean with all my sponsors, it's it's a great relationship. Yeah, your your bike. Uh, I I recently got a new bike, and I was seriously looking at the because of you on it. Your uh, your kind of breakdown. Of why you liked it and such, I've read somewhere you were talking about it and uh, how it works. For and uh, it's just my my local bike shop doesn't ha- happen to carry it, so I was <laughs> like, dang it! And um, because it looks like uh, that's a really that's a really smart bike, and uh, like it's easy to to assemble for races, disassemble, and the brakes are really accessible and all that stuff, right? I mean, we just we basically looked at uh, the how much of an advantage or disadvantage having integrated brakes were. And we discovered that really if you design the bike right, uh, the brakes really are, you know, they, they, they're, you're not talking more than a fraction of a gram. If you're actually maybe, you know, you're looking at just fractions of grams difference between having the fully integrated brake versus the, um, the non-integrated brake and actually we put a cowling over the front brake and we discovered it actually added drag huh. uh, to the bike so yeah. you know I, I mean everybody says it needs to have fully integrated brakes and we found that it, it, adding a cowling even made it slower so um granted every bike is different but uh you know we play, we played a lot uh, with this bike in the wind tunnel we put cowlings on just to see if covering the brake makes a difference putting them underneath versus 
uh, you know, in the traditional place where we have them uh, makes a huge difference. And, uh, you know, on that rear triangle, regardless of whether you have a, um, a brake there or not, I mean, that is a vacuum. And by putting a brake there, you actually, uh, you, f- you fill the vacuum uh, mm-hmm. and, you know, it creates, it actually improves the aerodynamics. It's the same thing in the front end. So, uh, and then the other cool thing we found was, is that fork uh, uh, with the, uh, with the fork, uh, with the fork basically bowed out, uh, just does awesome things uh, aerodynamically. Uh, first for areas where you don't have a zero yaw. I mean, if you have a zero yaw, yeah, you want the fork blades as close as you can get to the wheel, uh, similar to what they, what you see on the track bikes. But when you start throwing yaw in there, yeah, you want some space in there. Uh, and it just, I, I mean, we just discovered so much each time we were in the wind tunnel, uh, and, you know, just working with the uh, Mondagon university and saying, uh, who did a lot of the design work. Just it was just an awesome team effort, and to be part of it was is really cool. Uh, and I mean, I could go on and talk about the carbon layups on the bike and all that stuff for. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm a bike for, for a long too. time, but yeah. I mean, I, I was just getting too technical and boring for everybody. <laughs> well, I like also how they um, when I was looking for criteria for a bike, looking at buying a new the the bottle bosses behind the seat. Yes, uh, so you could put one of those um, uh, draft boxes behind it if you wanted. Right. Uh, it was really cool. And Orbea has that. And top two bosses. I love it that uh, the stem is, you know, one where you, it's not an integrated stem. So you right. could get easily switch your, your um, angle uh, right. and reach like no problems. And then uh, you also are sticking with uh, mechanical shifting so far. Yes. Is that just for reliability and races? I, yeah, I mean, the just, I mean, playing with it, the, um, the aerodynamic gain with that uh, Vision rear derailleur mm-hmm. is huge. Uh, you know, it's got uh, that. I think it's a fifteen tooth uh, pulleys. Oh. It's got a fifteen tooth pulley down there, and it's uh, you know, it's 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 fast and uh, it's it's worked well. And then, I mean, you look at uh, the electric shifting. You got those. The derailleurs are much bulkier because they have that servo motor in them, and. Right. That ultimately, that's the thing that's sailing out there in the wind. True. So uh, you eliminate those. It's 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 definitely an, uh, I feel an uh, an advantage. Huh? I didn't think so. Uh, how else do you have your bike set up uh, for race day? Do you? I saw there's a really good picture online of your bike hanging on a rack, getting ready to go. It looks like you have some sort of uh, torpedo bottle between the hands. Yeah, I got yeah. the uh, Torhan Zero Z bottle uh-huh. uh, between the hands and. Uh, you know, I go with the Torhans VR bottle on the down tube. Uh, yeah. What do you keep in that? That's just normal fluid. I mean, usually I run a uh, concentrate. Of, you know, that bottle's got about 300 calories in it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I guess I'm a little old school. I, the the uh, yeah, About uh, 15 years ago, people used to do the, you know, all their nutrition in one bottle and then sip it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I still, I still like to go with... Um, you know, just taking uh, at the aid stations water and having all the nutrition I need on board. Yeah, in uh, one bottle. In that, not in one bottle. Yeah. Uh, usually, usually I break it up over a couple bottles. Um, I used to do it in less bottles, uh-huh. but I I found that the aerodynamic disadvantage isn't as much as uh, uh, I originally thought it to be to have uh, stuff behind the saddle. If it, if you put it in the right place and the right location, stuff behind the saddle isn't that detrimental. So. Uh, 
Yeah, I, I kind of agree. What I've noticed is um, if I put it too concentrated in one bottle, that actually hurts my stomach no matter how much water I drink with it. But then if I break it up over a couple of bottles, then it's it's not as strong on the stomach. Right, and that's exactly it. that's exactly it. So yeah. you know, I'll, I'll usually go with about 300 calories in a bottle, and I'll pour about half of it and half of it at a time into the ROZ and you know top it off just keep topping it off with water at each aid station and just keep that keep that arrow bottle full because I know if I miss an aid station and uh, I have to drink Mm -hmm. the you know what's semi-concentrated I can I can stomach it for and it without too much detriment but uh, you know before when I had it uh, you know all, all the nutrition jammed into one bottle and it takes two or three days to disintegrate into the into uh, a suspension, yeah. uh, that that you couldn't sip. I mean, you would just sit and die yeah. till the next aid station. Yeah, I totally. Yeah, I've, I've thought about doing that. Where in the between the arms bottle, having concentrate, you know, down by my feet, and then pouring that into the into my I have a torpedo and uh, pouring that between my hands to dilute it into that, and then drink it from there. That's cool that you do that. I've been thinking about trying that. It's it, it, it's something that I found works for me. Uh, I mean, I did it with I did, I've done it for years. I did it with the vertical bottles, and now I've gone to a horizontal bottle. Mm-hmm. Uh, just you know, it's just it, it, it's what works for me. Yeah, yeah. So on the um, on your tires, do you uh, ride tubulars or latex and clinchers, or what do you ride? I- I bounce back and forth between uh, tubulars and latex clinchers. Uh, it just depends on the course, the, the pavement conditions, the amount of corners, all that stuff. I, uh, tubulars handle a lot better, and they do a lot better on rougher roads. Where uh-huh. if you got on flat, straight roads, the um, you know flat, straight, better paved roads, the uh, the clinchers work just a lot better. Did you you put sealant in them before you race or? I have, but I mean, I I feel it doesn't make a crap of a difference. I mean, I've had sealant in tires and they still blow out. So yeah, me too. <laughs> um, you know, sealant will work uh, maybe in a place you know if you're racing in the desert or a place like Kona. Uh-huh. But you know, here in the Midwest, if you cut a tire, I mean, you're usually just ripping the whole ripping the whole tire apart. Uh, on a huge stone or something, it's not a small puncture where it's like a thorn or something that you would find in a desert or out in a place like Kona. Yeah, my last flat I had sealant in it, uh, latex tubular, and just took a corner on an overpass, and all of a sudden, 50 feet later, the whole tire, rear tire, is shredded. I ran over a piece of metal that was yep. just cut through the whole thing. It just settled everywhere. But- so uh, let's see, when you go out on your training rides around uh, the countryside around Chicago? Yeah. Um, how in the world do you average like the kind of speeds that you do without crashing? Because it's like, uh, I've noticed uh, on my training rides, when I start getting up into the averages of the, the lower twenties that these tri bikes, like you got to really watch out, um, for turns and traffic and potholes. And like your, your speeds are so fast that, um, traffic's not really expecting you to be that fast. Uh, do you ever have trouble with that? Uh, yeah, I have. Uh, I mean, I've definitely had problems with the uh, traffic underestimating the speed that I'm going. Um, and, you know, sometimes I get traffic very frustrated with me because of the speed I'm going. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's easy to pass somebody who's going 18. Uh, it's not easy to pass somebody that's going 30. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've paid the price a few times with uh, vehicles, but... Uh, you know, mainly I live, uh, far enough out, uh, that I was able to, 
I'm where the suburbs meet the farm fields. So a a lot of my training is out in the farm fields. Yeah. Uh, I have, I mean, I have a few good loops that are shorter, but, uh, I mean, most of the time, uh, once I get, once I get out, uh, past Woodstock or past Crystal Lake, I mean, I get, I get into some rural areas where, uh, you know, I'll see more tractors than I will cars. Right. Uh, on, on, on any of the roads. So I'm able to, uh, really just, let it unwind and you know the cool thing is is yeah you, i have i have one road that i love to ride and it's got one stop sign for 30k and that's just i mean you're able to do uh a lot of good training on that and it's well paved uh yeah but you know I'm, i also enjoy uh but I, I mean the other thing i do is on my road bike i i actually don't ride i usually don't ride my road bike very often i actually have a touring bike that the Orbea makes they have a disc brake touring bike, the Avant that I love, oh. and I'm able to put 28s or 30s on it and just go out and ride on that because a lot of the country roads are just you know they're a little rougher. They, yeah, they, yeah. they you know you get heavy tractor, uh, heavy equipment, heavy, heavy tractor equipment and truck traffic on it, so they beat up the roads pretty good. But I mean, with a little more rubber underneath you, you run you know 75, 60 psi. Uh, you may go a little slower, but uh, at the end of the day, you're not beat up from uh, well, you don't have a uh, you know, riding a rodeo. You don't have a broken arm from crashing. <laughs> well, yeah. So do you uh, do you ride outdoors year-round, or do you spend a lot of time on the trainer? I, I don't spend very much time on the trainer. Okay, so year-round out there in Chicago, pretty much. Yeah, so. I mean, I really, I really love riding outside. I mean... Yeah. I I don't know if I would still be racing pro if I was able to if I had to do it all on a trainer. I think I would have quit a while ago because I mean, to me it's I mean the every, the joke is is that you know we call it the drainer and because it just drains the life out of you. Uh, I, I don't know how a lot of these guys I don't know how a lot of these guys do it just sitting staring at a TV or staring at a computer uh, training on a uh, training on it. I mean I had to do it uh, last winter and for a while and I had to do it I had to do it last winter for a long time almost the whole winter I spent on the trainer uh and I it it was sucked it sucked I hated riding and I spent a lot of time uh, this winter and you know I got a wahoo kicker cuz my uh you know my wife does all of her riding on it mm-hmm. uh and you know I liked I, I mean the the wahoo kicker definitely makes it uh a little better yeah. uh, but it's just I mean, Zwift helps a little bit, but yeah. I love riding outside. So on your on that touring bike, do you have it set up kind of like a triathlon bike? Like, does it have clip-ons on it? Or? No, it's a it's a it's a road bike. Okay, it's 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 yeah. I mean, it's set up just in my standard road position. Yeah, uh, yeah. I just I, I I do most of my riding on a road bike. Uh, I mean, just as I get closer, I do my threshold rides mm-hmm. on a time trial bike, and then I'll do my long rides and my threshold rides on my tri bike, uh, when we get closer to races, but wow. a majority of my race, a majority of my riding is on the, on a road bike on, on race day. Where do you keep your bike? Comp- um, is it like up close to your hands or is it I bring one? Uh, if I bring one, it's, it's, uh, just up on, up towards the front of the, um, up towards the front of the, uh, whatchamacallit, the arrow bottle. Uh, yeah. but, Many many times I don't even race with one. I just you know get something that measures that can detect my heart rate, and uh, I'll just race off heart rate. Oh, cool! Uh, just I I mean if you if you think about it, uh, you're if you look at, when you're when you're driving. Yeah. Uh, if you want to get optimal fuel fuel mileage, you keep the 
gas pedal at one place, at one in one location, and you know you watch your your speed will articulate about you know three to five miles an hour. Yeah, and that's the same thing for how I race. I mean, I, I let I keep my heart rate, my engine at one at one pace, something that I know that's going to suit me well in the end of the race. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'll let my power go up twenty five and down twenty five watts is based on how the body feels. Right, that's pretty cool. I, I totally expected you to ride by power or something like that, but by heart rate. Yeah, I mean, I, and there's a lot of races where I don't even, I barely even look at the computer, and yeah. I just go on feel, and I'll look down and be like, "Ooh, I need to back off." <laughs> yeah. Well, let's uh, hop over to questions from listeners. Okay. Let's see. Uh, Eric Swanson is asking, did, did you make Dark Mark by dinner after you did such a heroic carry with him from away that? No, I didn't. I wouldn't make somebody who just got hit by a vehicle buy me dinner. I've been there. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, uh, I tried to, I tried to persuade him to, uh, you know, to switch over to the dark side and ride a fast bike. I'm like the parachute he's been riding, but he wouldn't do it. Yeah. I teased him about that bike too. Yeah. Well, you know, said, <laughs> if the bike... The bike can't stop very quick, uh, hence he got hit by a car. Yeah. Or he ran into the side of the car. Yeah. I said, oh, look, and I, did the bike get totaled? Maybe you could get another one. So uh, let's see. Chris H. wants to know about this ride post Strava. I guess it's two days after New Orleans. Okay. Where you went out and rode, I guess, 100 miles. Okay. Um, two days after New Orleans, I think I rode 110. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so were you I thought sore? you would have asked me about the week before. Uh, no, it's... Oh, okay. uh, because between Galveston, because between Galveston and New Orleans, I, mm-hmm. I rode 140 miles on that Tuesday. Dang. Well, maybe it is. The, I'm trying to look at see the date on it. But anyway, you, you're. Uh, was it? Was it? Was it? Was it? A, was it? Was the ride in Texas or was the ride in Illinois? Illinois. Oh, so yeah, that was after New Orleans. So 177 kilometers. Yeah, it's 110 miles. Yeah. So legs not sore or you just felt like excited. You did so well in New Orleans. You're going to go out and have a great Tuesday, ride. Tuesday is my long ride day. So uh-huh. I just, uh, you know, I raced hard. Uh, you know, I went basically did uh, just above a threshold effort on Saturday, on Sunday and recovered. I mean, I flew home Sunday night, recovered on Monday and uh, went out and just resumed my train, picked up my training right where I left off on uh, Tuesday. That's awesome. So uh, Emil Jot, I'm trying to get is asking, uh, they're doing their first Ironman in three months. Okay. And what's the best tip? But I guess it totally depends on where, well, I guess it's their first. So a little All bit right. of knowledge there. The biggest tip, the best tip I ever got was uh, from my godson's mother. Uh-huh. Uh, she said, uh, you know, there's different there's different times in a race that you're going to feel great. And, there's, and you just got to embrace those times where you really are enjoying yourself and feeling great. And then there's other times that are really going to suck. And when you're in that really going to suck phase, you just say, okay, you know, Bob, I've done the training. My body's going to come around. I'm going to feel good again and just put one foot in front of the other and just wait for it for it, wait for it, because the body's going to cycle through when I'm going to feel good here in a little bit. Yeah, I agree. I, I had a really good coach tell me one time for my first one, uh, just commute to the 5K, like, the 5K at the end of the marathon is the race. And until then, just don't even try <laughs> for your first one. Yeah, just hold back. So that, that's my advice. The, uh, yeah, you definitely with the ups and downs, right? Once you know that you're going to feel like crap, but it'll go away if you take care of yourself. Then you'll feel great again. Yeah, I'm still working on the feeling great part in an Ironman. <laughs> All right. I want to jump in one last time and give a shout out to Amrita Bars, longtime sponsor of Zen Try. Great stuff. I wonder how many I've had today. 
at least one. I think I had one uh, today after my swim. Oh man, apple cinnamon. That's so good. They have so many different flavors. They have a recovery bar, a maca chocolate. Oh my God, it's the best. Oh, you know what? One thing I really love about Amrita bars is the wrapper is like, uh, it's kind of like a cliff bar or a Laura bar where you can kind of easily open one end of it and then you can take a bite. You can eat like a third of it, just a bite, and then um, fold the wrapper back over the uh, bar and then put it back in the leg of your cycling shorts and then keep on pedaling. It really works. And then uh, you chew that bite and that'll last you, you know, for a while, for like uh, 20, 30, 40 minutes. And then uh, you pull the the wrapper out of the top of your cycling shorts again, you know, down by your knee. You pull it out, work the bar. I'm doing this with my hand. Can you hear that? Work the bar forward a little bit, take another bite, wrap it back up, put it all into your uh, leg again. And uh, then you have whole bars still in the wrapper behind your back. And just pull them out of your cycling jersey, and um, they're easy to chew. They're not like this dry, powdery stuff where you take a bite, and then when you breathe in, the dust from uh, dry, powdery stuff plus um, the wind coming in your face while you're running or biking, all of a sudden you start choking on it. Ah, my God, I think I'm dying. What happened? Oh, I wish I had an Amrita bar instead of this. Oh, my God. See? Don't do that. Don't choke on stuff while exercising. Chew on Amrita bars. Don't. Don't choke, chew, and read bars. That's my new tagline. They're going to have to run with that. Okay. <laughs> they also have a club. It is called the Amrita Club, of course. AmritaHealthFoods.com slash product slash Amrita Club. Go check them out. They have all kinds of cool stuff. And also, the discount code for Zentri is, I don't know, is it 20% off? Is it 10% off? You're going to have to go and find out. It could be... It could be 100% off. You don't know, but it's not. But anyway, the discount code is ZEN2016. Go to amritabars.com, amritahealthfoods.com, actually, and go check them out and check out all the pictures and all the cool kit and all the great socks and jerseys and neat stuff they have. I love it. You should love it, too. All right. Let's get back to the interview. Let's see. Ryan Clayton says, uh, you're his favorite pro, and he's saying he- Better be. Yeah. It's like, what well, do? Is there a question? And then, uh, what's he's asking? Why you don't have a triathlon specific coach? Does that mean that you have coaches like just for running and a coach for biking? Yeah. Okay, so yeah. So why? Well, I mean, I, this is my favorite. One of my favorite topics. It's uh-huh. like, uh, um, so do you? When you go to have surgery, do you want to have the doctor that does your surgery? Do you want him to be the anesthesiologist, the doctor, and the? Uh, you know, and the uh, the plastic surgeon that sews you back up, or do you want those to be three different people? You're making me feel like it's like the doctor that puts a leather strap in your mouth and gives you a bottle of whiskey. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, it's like Civil War doctor. Exactly. I mean, and that, that's that's kind of how I feel about it. I yeah. think uh, you know, having a run coach, it's a dedicated run coach. He, uh, you know, he he knows running, mm-hmm. and you know, you have a bike coach that understands biking and knows biking. And, you know, and it's not like all three of my coaches don't communicate with each other. Right. Right. So, I mean, as long as we continue to have good communication, which we do, and it it shows, uh, that we're, you know, we're having success with it. Uh, and it's what works for me. It doesn't work for everybody. No, probably won't work for everyone, but, uh, I find, uh, we've been really successful with it. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Go out of your way to make sure they're talking. You have to. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, yeah, you've got three experts, but all telling each other what's... That's pretty cool. 
Yeah. You don't want to have you don't want to have an anesthesiologist trying to sew you up and you don't want to have a doctor trying to give you anesthesia. Right. Or I mean, a veterinarian. You could. I'm sure he read a book on it at some point in his life. <laughs> so uh what about let's see, I guess our last question is Ryan the Elf King. That's a question. Says uh do you run solely off the crushed sweat and competitor? Yes. See, you know what the funny thing is, is you are Zen triathlon, and I am like the antichrist of Zen. Oh, yeah? I mean, I race on passion, rage, anything I can find fuel on. I just, I don't find fuel in huh. I, I really don't. I, I mean, I find, and if when, I, I, I do best when I want to go out there and I want blood, I want to beat somebody. Uh, that's That's how I race best, so... But so yeah, I do really race well on. I race on, you know, I race well on breaking people's dreams. <laughs> the uh, well, the funny thing is, you don't know is actually I started doing Zen stuff because I'm so hyper competitive that I needed something to to turn it off sometimes. Uh, no, you really don't. You just need to feel it properly. You feel it properly. Like I was doing a trail run, and the woman in front of me fell down and broke her leg. Oh, that sucks. <laughs> and uh, like I'm uh, I'm like crazy competitive. Crazy, crazy. So, so how do I feel it more properly? I mean, you just, uh, you just gotta, you know, in some, when some, in that situation, you just, you ask the woman if she's all right. She tells you no, and you, you know, you got to make a decision of whether, yeah, you know, are you going to continue your race or whether you're going to help her. You know, mm-hmm. that, but that's an extreme situation that you bring up there. Um, you're just, you just really got to each workout. Take everything that's happened today and uh, really channel it. Uh, really, just channel it positively because uh, you can. It's very easy to take things that are going on around you and let it affect you negatively. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, if let's say you're doing a race, and for example, you know, myself, seventy point three Austin last year. I, you know, at the was it twenty eight mile mark? No, twenty nine thirty mile mark mm-hmm. uh, yeah I got a couple minute lead I flatted right and it was one of those where you know I could have uh, thrown my helmet and gotten pissed off that uh, how can this happen I'm, you know I've busted my butt for so long and trying to get healthy here and I'm finally healthy and having a great race and here I am I flatted right uh, but yeah I just just immediately got off the bike and started uh, changing the tire and Change a tire and fell. I don't know. I think it took me four minutes to change a tire. Mm-hmm. And it's four minutes from the time I stopped to the time I was back on the bike rolling. And, uh, you know, I lost the race by 90 seconds. But, you know, never during that whole race or thereafter was I ever thinking about, uh, you know, that I was pissed off that I got a flat tire. Right. I mean, the whole time I am focusing on the moment. And how can I do better in the moment? And that that's the thing is is you 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 gotta be able to shut that off. And it's not Zen, because you know, that having that flat tire fueled me. I mean it, I had the best run that I've ever had off the bike there. Right. But if I would have been pissed off, I never would have had a good run. I mean, I got off the bike and I had I had the rage of hell inside of me. Uh, you know, and I chased Sam Appleton and I think he beat me by like 75 or 80 seconds. Um, and, and I chased him for a good 12 mi- or 11 miles. And then at mile 11, I'm like, well, I'm racing Ironman Arizona next weekend. I think I probably better shut the shit down and, uh, save something for next weekend. But, yeah. uh, you know, that one was one where you, it's a perfect example of, you know, it's, 
I'm, yeah, I'm not an ultra-competitive person, but hey, I got a flat tire. I got to fix it. And I use that to fuel me positively instead of being like, oh, son of a gun, I got a flat tire. This sucks. Poor, poor me. That I just went out there and, you know, hey, it doesn't matter. I'm going to try to win this race. Yeah, well, a lot of a lot of Zen is appropriate response, being really aware, you know, and saying that and I should hold back because I've got this race uh, coming up. This flat could happen to anybody. Focus on fixing it, and like you were saying, being in the moment correctly at the time. So it's kind of a mix what you're doing there. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, and uh, I, I've definitely found that if I'm in a race and I don't have a competitor that I'm wanting to crush, I don't race anywhere near as fast. Yeah, see, and that's the. And that's, uh, you know, kind of, you know, perfect example. Yeah. Um, and my best races are totally when there's a guy that's, it's pretty equivalent, just maybe a little bit faster than take them out. <laughs> How do you do on those? Oh, way better, man. My heart rate yeah. will drive way higher on the run. I'm, I do, uh, I'm willing to uh, really push it all the way to the line and come across a completely spent. Yeah. So, and that's exactly, yeah. Um, and if there's not, then I kind of treat it almost like a training day and just looking forward. There's no such thing as a training day. <laughs> True. Yeah, man. Well, it's been awesome having you on. Did I uh, well, thank you. Did I miss anything? You want to talk about anything else or you got sponsors that we didn't get to? Or oh, What's your next race? I'm doing Ironman Texas. I'm going down in the, your neck of the woods and, yeah. uh, you know, going to swim in the muddy water down there and mm-hmm. uh, do a little crit bike style course. We, it sounds like we're going to have and then... Uh, uh, I, I heard I heard a rumor that uh, you guys are about to get into a hot snap, and it could be 95 degrees for race day. Oh man, if it is, you've raced Ironman Texas before. Right? No, I have not. Oh man, not. well you've you've raced really humid, hot stuff. Uh, if it gets hot and humid down here, it is unbelievably bad. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it, it, if you if you can handle it, and then other people just come apart. I was reading your uh, race report on. Um, Yes, it was New Orleans. Yeah, I think it was New Orleans, and it was like super windy and crosswinds. Yeah, and, and you were like totally into it. And yeah, um, I love, I love. I, hey, yeah, I am, I am a windmill. I, I just, I really love windy weather. I. Yeah. It was funny. I was going to tweet a couple days after the race. Was it the 110 mile ride or was it the 30 miles the next day? I don't remember. Mm-hmm. But one of the days, it was just brutal wind. Um, I'm trying to think. One of those days, it was just, and I. I was thinking about it's a good day. I, it's a good. It's a good thing that I went to New Orleans and had that windy day there because it was perfect warm up for today. <laughs> I mean, I mean, we're just out in the country. Granted, in New Orleans, it was coming straight off the water, so it was like it was steady. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I really didn't think the wind at New Orleans was that strong mm-hmm. until I turned around and caught the tailwind. Right. And that's when I realized that oh boy. I mean, I was I shifted around on the saddle and. I mean, I remember there was a couple times on, I mean, less on the bike, more on the run where, I mean, I would grab a bottle, uh, on, or grab a cup on the run and toss it into a garbage can and it wouldn't, it would, it would just literally just, it would, Blow it was going faster than I was. <laughs> and, uh, but I, I mean, we, it was just one of those awesome sensations. I mean, there was, there were sections there where we had a straight tail and I mean, I was cranking out, I, I was up on power and. I mean, I was at 115 RPM in the 5511 and just flying back. So it was, it, I mean, it, it's an awesome sensation, but then those little cracks and bumps in the road, mm-hmm. they're like launching ramps. I mean, yeah. there was one that I was like, if there would have been any crosswind at all when I hit it, yeah. I mean, I would have ended up, I would have ended up on somebody's roof. Yeah. Uh, cause I mean, I, I went, 
I mean, it was just, it looked like a little crack or bump in the road and it just launched off and it was just like, whoa. But, uh, yeah, I, I, just the wind, racing with the wind is, uh, it's a huge advantage for me. And, uh, unfortunately they're switching around your Texas course. So I don't know whether it's going to be a windy, windy course or one that's sheltered from the wind or, you know, I, I don't know what it's going to be, but, uh, you know, I'm just hoping. I'm hoping for a miserably hot day because uh, it always seems those tougher days suit me well. Yeah, I do. Um, it's really windy. I, I'm in College Station, of like an hour and a half outside of Houston, and it's super windy here all the time. And I'll go out on rides and here, like, kind of struggling. I mean, you need to ride outside more because you get used to it. It's no big deal. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, for the for Ironman Texas, what do you uh, what are your goals for that besides just winning? Is there any like pros that you've got your sights on or that you're looking out for, or um, any other goals? I I mean the biggest goal is is to uh, you know get enough points in that race to go to Kona. Uh, that, that's the biggest goal yeah. there. Uh, I mean the biggest you know the number one goal is to get the points for Kona, and the number two goal is to win. So. Right. In that order, uh, you know, it's kind of sucks that it's not the other way around, but that's kind of the position we've been put in by the current point system that WTC has. Is yeah. uh, you know, a lot of us now race to get to Kona, and then you know we'll race within the race, uh, just you know, based on our level of security, uh, mm-hmm. based on that. Uh, on the flip side. Uh, the goals there is, is yeah, I want to have a, a good swim and, uh, I, you know, want a successful bike would be coming off the bike with a, uh, you know, a 15 to 20 minute lead. Yeah. Uh, if, if it was a, if it was a, if it was a loop, one loop, good road, straight course like Galveston or New Orleans or Florida or Arizona where you get, uh, you know, long stretches without uh, being able to break your cadence uh, or break your rhythm. Uh, I would say that, you know, I'd love to be around four, if not under four, but uh, it doesn't look like we're going to have that opportunity on this course. And then uh, the run will be, uh, the run will be the run. It's just, uh, especially if it's a hot day and just pull it, pull those shoelaces tight and uh, hold on for dear life. The run, I can give you a little preview of that because I've done it a bunch of times. It's um, it'll probably be three loops yep. if they keep it, and it's a mix of a paved trail that goes along a road and through the woods, like a just a bike trail through the, the subdivision. Mm-hmm. Uh, a little bit of shade out there, and then um, it kind of wraps around the lake. That right, and uh, so it's a little little exposed out there, and then it goes to, like this. Woodlands has like a little artificial downtown right on the canal. Okay. And you run through that, and that can get kind of hot and um, uh, and exposed. You know, a lot of concrete and glass. And uh, but the crowds in that area are awesome. So it's kind of like uh, Galveston in that it's a lot of crowds cheering you on in certain places, but then also there's a section that kind of goes off. Okay. So cool. Yeah. Yeah, and very Thanks. flat. Okay. So cool, man. Well, it's been an honor having you on. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me.
All right, that was a little bit of Jane's Addiction coming to you from, I believe, 1988 from the Nothing's Shocking album. And that is an awesome, awesome song. That was the same song I used to listen to in high school right before I had to swim, like, say, the 50 or the 100-yard uh, freestyle in swim meets. I'd put that on my, uh, on my Walkman or whatever I had back then and crank it up and uh, get super amped for a sprint. And, uh, yeah, it really, really works. So, again, uh, check out Jane's Addiction's old stuff. Really cool. All right, let's go ahead and hop into, real quick, I don't want to spend forever on it, but it is useful stuff, the uh, tips and tricks I use to win the local uh, Grand Fondo 100-mile bike race. And I used tricks that I picked up from doing years of Ironman racing and long bike rides and uh, pacing and strategy, and I collected my thoughts afterwards um, to share with everybody on what I did and uh, what works so that you can use it for both long bike rides and for um, uh, bike races and for Ironmans and half Ironmans. This stuff's good for all, all around all kinds of stuff. And I'm in a room that's, a, that's definitely echoey. I'm sure you can hear it. I don't know if I can muffle it at all. Maybe this, does this hurt? Help. Okay. But anyway, uh, first off, again, props to Kai for riding 40 miles with another kid. That is really crazy. Um, the whole Grand Fondo for BCS, BCS stands for Bryan College Station, uh, was put on to uh, raise awareness and raise funds uh, for the cancer clinic and for uh, probably some to go to a, a, a particular patient. And he... Uh, they raised $130,000 in uh, over the course of a few days and uh, through all the charity uh, donations and people signing up for the bike ride. I think there was a 40 and a 70, maybe a 20, the 100, and then there was the 500-mile gravel version, which was just crazy. And um, I got to see, I think it was Team Todd, I think it was for Todd uh, was the guy, and he was up and walking around, and it's really um, memorable and weird and uh, emotional to see a guy that everybody knows is terminal, including him, and uh, and just walking around and uh, doing his thing, and uh, you know, just to know that somebody amongst you isn't going to be here um, in a year or whatever for sure is. Uh, a little bit inspiring and uh, remind you to live, uh, do the most you can today because you just never know. So, um, yeah, it was heavy. Uh, he was at the finish line, which was super cool. Um, all right, so my strategy was I wanted to win if possible, if possible, because you never know who's going to show up. But I wanted to pay it back to my local bike shop, Aggie Land Cycles, for giving me a bit of a deal on my bike, probably between 500 and a thousand bucks off my bike. Because I'm always an advocate for this bike shop because they're the local bike shop. And uh, they've got competition moving in from Houston. And they've been my bike shop since probably 94, 93, 94. And I've bought so many bikes through them. And they're just great. And I love them. And I know the owner. And I just I always try to support them as my local bike shop. And since they were supporting me back, um, 
I wanted to be worthy of, <laughs> even though I don't have the bike yet, I wanted to be worthy of the discount that they're giving me. They're kind of like sponsoring me in a, in a way. And I feel like that, um, well, they don't, I don't want them to be sponsoring, uh, feel like they're sponsoring just some chump, you know, like this guy really tries really hard. And so I was like, I'm going to try to go out and win this whole thing. <laughs> and then they'll be like, all oh, right. You know, Brett's a good guy. I'm glad we're, I'm glad we're sponsoring him. Right. And, uh, they were also one of the sponsors of the race and that was pretty cool too. So Aggie land cycles, big shout out to you guys. So I went into it. Yeah. Trying, I was going to win the whole 100 was my strategy. So, uh, first thing, uh, secret weapon. Number one was a camelback, a 70 ounce camelback. And the reason I did this is through a little bit of kind of asking some questions and, and, uh, it's kind of the feel of things. It seemed like the aid stations uh, were going to be set up, so you had to actually get off your bike to get water. And they had, I think, six aid stations. So I was like, well, if I never have to get off my bike, or if I reduce the number of times I have to get off my bike, that's a minute or two each time that uh, I won't have to stop, and other people will, to get water. So load up the Camelback, and I had like a a water bottle in the between the arrow bars right this is a good strategy for iron man and um because we learned in iron man the, one of the coolest things about my first triathlon that i ever that i ever did that i thought was so awesome what made triathlon special is that we fly through aid stations on the bike and uh they hand water up to you and you grab it with your hand as you go flying through i'd never seen anything like that before in my life and uh back in 2003 or whatever when I did my first ever one and that's I was like dude we are really racing this is super cool uh, and that's so invigorating you know and oh hold on I gotta take a break for dinner I'll be uh well let me finish this one uh so don't ever get off the bike and um uh just like an Iron Man which I've learned through Iron Man's several minutes save their secret weapon number two was uh, to bring a map with me, there's a good chance that to get lost uh, because it's, it's the first time they were running this course. And if I don't get lost, that saves me time. If other people do get lost, that counts against them and not against me. So if I have a map, there's I'm either not getting lost or other people are getting lost and I'm not getting lost. So either way... <laughs> I'm, I'm winning, so I needed a map. And then secret weapon number three is to know the wind direction for the day and also the temperature. All right, and I'll come back in a second. We'll pick this up. All right, I'm back. Spaghetti and meatballs. All right, so yeah, secret weapon number three is the uh, map and know the wind direction. Okay, so I got up that morning and uh, the race started, I think it was going to start at 7 or 7.30. And um, so I made my fuel uh, I had two different fuel bottles, um, so you can put stuff in a uh, in a bottle and shake it up, or you can go crazy and put it in a blender, and that way it's made mixed up really well. And that's what I just did. I threw a Gatorade and maltodextrin powder, which you can Gatorade um, you can buy powdered Gatorade, and uh, you can really concentrate it. And maltodextrin powder, which is essentially a gel, um, it's way cheaper than making than buying gels, and uh, yeah, so that's what I did. And I uh, put that in a blender with water, blended it, poured it into an aero bottle down on the frame. 
And then, so that's real fast acting fuel, right? And so then I made a bottle of slow acting fuel that was going to be my base that I was going to use and then use the fast acting as needed on top of it, right? Um, And my slow fuel was Ucan and Hornet juice and a little bit of green tea matcha powder for um, caffeine and um, salt, for uh, uh, Salt Stick Endurolites, or no, Endurolites is a different brand. I was using Salt Stick anyway, and um, and a little bit of sea salt as well in there. And what's cool when I was making it is you can do Salt Stick uh, capsules and just break them open, and uh, that's really neat. I like it that you can do that. Thanks, guys. And uh, just put that in a bottle, and I had the little steel shaker ball in the. Um, in the bottle as well, because uh, maltodextrin, not malto, you uh, can settles really badly and really quickly, and it's very difficult to keep in suspension. So adding one of those mixer ball things uh, that you get with one of those drink bottle things you buy at the grocery store, add that in there and uh, to shake it up, right? Okay, and before the race, uh, about half an hour, I timed it, half an hour before the race, I took a shot of you can and Hornet juice. Yeah, right about then. And that was so that it's in my system at the race start. And then um, I'm now I'm at the start line, and Emily and Kai are way further back. There's tons of people, and we're all lined up in the street. It's beautiful. It's a great day. You know, you do the, the, uh, the American anthem, and they do a prayer a lot of times in the south, like Texas, and, and uh, just getting ready. And I turn on my uh, bike computer. And the day before, I had um, hooked up my bike computer to my computer to try to put uh, a map on it, and it failed. It wouldn't take it, and it was a Garmin 510. It wouldn't take it. There's this weird error that some people get, and uh, uh, so I gave up on that. Well, it turns out that uh, doing that, um, my bike computer decided to update itself or maybe I updated it to the latest version. And of course it forgot, it lost all of its settings. So the screen was just the standard screen and I have eight, I have eight rows, (laughs) eight boxes of information on my screen. It had lost the pairing with my power meter and and your power meter does cadence and speed and all that stuff. And it uh, lost, um, my heart rate strap, like nothing. It was just like the dumbest bike computer you could possibly have all of a sudden right in front of me when I powered it on. And I was like, what in the world? And there was a um, a little bit of a delay. They were waiting for some somebody important to show up or something. And um, so there was a little bit of a delay in the start. So I was sitting there fiddling with it and fiddling with it. But on my wrist, I still had my Garmin uh, 920 XT. And on that, the day before, because the um, the map wouldn't load, and I got the map from Map My Ride or something like that, and I'd loaded it into um, the Garmin on my wrist and kind of played around with it so that I was kind of familiar how to zoom in and zoom out. And um, But it's really difficult, though. Um, but it turns out it was totally worth it. And... Um, uh, I still had that and that at least had, but it's hard to see it's on my wrist. Right. Um, uh, but it had, uh, the main screen had heart rate Watts, uh, 
and time elapsed. And then on the bike computer, I still had time um, and miles on it, like distance. So I, I had some information, but not. I had the very, very basics. And but this is really good. Um, unfortunately, I mean, this kind of crap happens on race days sometimes, and so you need to be cool and collected and work up until the last minute trying to fix it, and also trying to find workarounds and not throwing a fit and getting upset. I just kind of kept to myself, and I was like, "Dang, man, I got to work on this, work on this, work on this." You know, it always happens at the worst possible time, always. And this was the worst possible time, and I was just working with it, right? And um, around me, I heard a lot of people talking, and there's some teams, and there's uh, a lot of road bikes, a f- very few triathlon bikes, but some, some nice tri bikes, and uh, people from all over, from Houston, Dallas, and Austin. So I was, while I'm working on my uh, main bike computer, my 510, trying to get things to uh, pick up, uh, you know, I was listening to the conversations around me, trying to pick up on like people's uh, strategies or what was kind of going on. And um, what was really funny as I'm like, okay, well, I'm wearing my power meter has been spinning, and my because uh, I had to ride over to the start, like a uh, quarter of a mile or something like that. And I've had my heart rate strap on, so it's on. So um, pair, that's what you call it when you pick up your stuff. I'm like, okay, pair, and it goes <laughs> something like there's. There's more than 30 heart rate straps around right now. Uh, please move away from them so that you can uh, you can pair with your heart rate strap. And I was like, oh my God, I'm at the starting line of a huge bike race and everybody's wearing a heart rate strap. So it can't find mine because of everybody else. I mean, it was so ridiculous. I was like, oh my God. Um, so I gave up on that. Cause we're all lined up, you know, ready to go. I'm, I'm down to the last second, like trying to fix this stuff. And, um, I should also say the days before the race on purpose, because I was going to use this as Ironman training as well. I had run 45 miles in the previous five days. I'd run nine miles a day for five days. <laughs> so I went into this with legs that uh, were uh, on the edge of not feeling great. So this was going to be a really good training day for me. And I did that, like I said, on purpose uh, to treat it. It's not my A race, you know, so treat it like a B race and train it, train through it. And uh, it hurting is really good training, mental training for a race day on an Ironman. And then um, let me hop over to this. The uh, They started and I was in the first group and we took off. And I just started riding immediately like it was a training ride. Um, and uh, some <laughs> this other guy later, he told me, he goes, man, you just took off like a bat out of hell. <laughs> I was like, is that what it looked like? Because I was just riding. He's like, yeah, everybody was like scrambling to try to keep up with you. And uh, I thought, um, yeah, I wonder if it, they were doing that thing. A lot of roadies do this thing where you, you start off kind of casual on, on a big group ride. And then you accelerate as uh, things start picking up, and they start going crazy, you know. Once once they kind of get rolling, but I just started off at um, at race pace, a hundred mile race pace, you know, which isn't all that fast, but it was a race race pace, and it was downhill uh, at the start. And um, since I weigh one hundred and eighty something pounds, it's easy for me to accelerate. Like uh, I guess you know I had gravity working with me or something. Anyway, the um, 
it was the first few miles was uh had a lot of hills um just up and down and up and down and what's funny is on a on a triathlon bike because it's heavier and because i'm heavier and also because i've done all this training about pacing and stuff like that i know not to crank it up hills uh there's a group on road bikes that would pass me on the uphills and i could have easily kept up with them but I've learned to not do that, that I'll catch them back on the downhills and on the flats um, and that rushing up the uphills is a good way to uh, burn out your legs early on. And uh, so I would let them pass me on the uphills and um, uh, that's a really good strategy to remember for race day. And uh, just keep everything really even. You, you, you work the uphills, but uh, not, you don't work them like too hard, just real gentle, just a little bit harder than you would on the flats. And it turns out that's faster. There's a big article about that online. I should, I should find that and post a link to it. It's really cool. Um, so, yeah, I could feel my legs kind of hurting a little bit. And then uh, we get on to um, this, this flats. We're now in the River Valley bottom, and it's really flat for a long time, but we're riding into the wind. And I knew from researching which way the wind was going to blow that day that the out was going to be into the wind and the back was going to be um, with the wind. And it was pretty windy at 10, 15, maybe gusts up to 20 or something like that, miles per hour. So I just, um, on the flats, I was uh, just, you know, in the arrow position and cranking along. And <laughs> it was so funny. The, uh, there was a group that had formed a train behind me, um, trying to trying to keep up and stay in my draft and every once in a while they would pull up next to me like they were going to take a turn at the front um but then they they probably could have some but um but i never gave a sign that i wanted to take a turn in the back and relax because i'm treating this as a um as a training day you know and an iron man you can't draft so i just need to practice you know riding into the wind and uh that's what i was doing and i was cool with it you know i wasn't looking for shelter and uh, uh, after a while, this one guy pulled up next to me and he goes, man, you're a beast, dude. <laughs> I was like, uh, okay, I, uh, I guess so. And I was just, uh, just pedaling along and, um, I mean, I was working, but I was just, um, just doing my own thing, you know? And, um, we were, uh, yeah, going into the wind like that for a long time. And, um, turns out looking at my, um, uh, Looking at my uh, heart rate graph and my, because um, my watch captured it, um, heart rate graph and the uh, watts, I averaged 240 watts for the first hour and a half um, riding into that stuff and with a train behind me of guys. <laughs> and so it was really funny and uh, just consistent, you know, just on a, on a flat end of the wind. And then um, at some point during that, I reached back behind me to grab my, yeah, probably about half an hour to 45 minutes in to grab my, um, my slow fuel. And I talked to the guy after the, after the race and he said, um, it was kind of funny that I reached back and with my hand to where the bottle was and there was no bottle and my hand kind of waved around. I reached until I hit the, I've got two bottles behind the seat until I reached even further and hit the second bottle. And then I, my fingers went into the empty bottle cage and I was feeling it. And then I shook my head and going, damn it. I lost my slow fuel. That was going to be my big test for the day to see how this stuff, you know, really worked. And it was expensive, man. It's Hornet juice. Um, you can, those are all not, you know, the cheapest stuff out there. 
and the um, the steel shaker ball inside that I borrowed from somebody to use, and uh, and the bottle and Amrita Bar's bottle, um, just gone. And um, a guy pulled up next to me, and he goes, "Yeah, man, uh, you lost that bottle uh, a while back." And I go, "Crap! Like how long ago? When did I lose it?" And uh, he goes, "Like on the first mile." <laughs> I was like, "Holy shit!" <laughs> really? And he's like, "Yeah, you were going so fast that it just like flew off of it. You hit a bump and it flew off the bike." And I go, "Oh well, I guess maybe after the after the race, I can swing back by." and uh go pick it up since it was on the first mile i'll be able to find it and he goes oh no man when it hit the ground it blew up man it just went everywhere it's all over the place (laughs) it's like ah crap (laughs) so um so slow fuel plan out the window right and so now we're working with uh fuel bottle number two that had like 250 uh maybe 350 calories per hour in it and enough for the whole maybe not for the entire ride but it had a it had a it had a good amount of calories in it, and I'd been working with you know I pre fueled for the race with some stuff too. So I was like, oh, I'm just gonna have to do what we're you know what we're gonna do. It's all about um, minimizing damage, and um, I could definitely tell that on the first part of the ride, like riding into all that, that 240 watts um, for the first hour and a half. Uh, just cruising into the headwind and feeling great. I mean, that was Hornet juice and you can working great. I was working really, really good. And that was, um, that was great stuff. Uh, but I was a little bit worried because my slow fuel also had caffeine in it. And so I was going to be going with no caffeine and that's going to get ugly. Um, but, uh, let's see, while riding in the wind, it's really hard to look at my watch. I, oh, I couldn't, um, I couldn't look at my watch at the map on my watch because that takes the whole screen and it's t- it's tiny anyway um, and get my uh, heart rate and uh, watts at the same time, right? It's one or the other and, um, and I needed this map because I didn't know where I was going and we're out on the front and the signs for where to turn are actually pretty small. And I just left it on the map so I would know where to turn. And then that's where the uh, Zone 3 breathing tip that I've got uh, really came in, in handy. Um, if you're huffing for air, you're starting to get into Zone 3. You're dangerously close to uh, peeking out, and you need to back it off some if you're doing something long. So I found myself kind of pursing my lips and breathing out every once in a while, and then I would go, nope, don't do that. Just back off, relax, only you can go as hard as you can until you start having to purse your lips on the out breath. And once you hit that, then that's too hard. And so I was using that and it worked really good. And then, um, let's see, now my notes get kind of out of order here. Uh, so let me just go out of order stuff and that way I can get it, uh, done right. Um, I ended up getting first place to average 21 and a half miles per hour, um, some of the pavement was kind of rough. There were some big hills and, uh, unfamiliar pavement and, uh, really strong winds, uh, on the way out. And yeah, like actually really, really strong. Um, at one point I missed a turn and because I made friends with another rider, he yelled at me, uh, from behind, uh, Hey, you missed a turn. Uh, we were the last two left and, um, I, 
the reason he saved me is because earlier in the ride, even though I'm so competitive and I wanted to win this thing, I was still friendly to everybody. And, uh, you know, I didn't have my game face on like too seriously. I was smiling. I was nice. And whenever anybody talked to me, I'd talk to them back and ask how they were doing. How's ever, you know, where are you from? And, oh, it's going to be a great day and stuff like that. And then that way, when I screwed up and I needed help, they helped me. And uh, that's that's why one reason you don't want to be like too crazy out there because you're going to mess up and you're going to depend on other people to help you. And if you if you're a jerk, then um, people are going to want to watch you crash and burn and they're not going to help you. Uh, a weird thing is I wore full gloves and arm coolers uh, to protect me uh, from the sun. Um, and these gloves I decided to wear were um, like skiing glove glove liners. So they're real thin. They're black, which isn't great. But it wasn't really all that hot that day. It was just kind of average. It's like 70 um, at the most, maybe 65, 70 degrees, maybe 75 probably. Um, with the wind flowing over them, uh, it was nice. But anyway, I got no sun exposure on my arms or hands uh, being out there all day, you know, or uh, until noon, um, which was really great. Um, the only thing I noticed was a little bit troublesome getting a grip on things to open them. So if I needed to open a water bottle or I needed to work with the bike computer, um, not having my fingertips um, was a bit of a pain. So not really sure about that all the way around. It worked during this, but you know who knows for real. Um, oh, the guy that was uh, that I made friends with on the ride. His name is Michael, and he's from Dallas. And I told him about Zentry, and uh, that's a. Uh, uh, he's a cool dude and he's just getting into triathlon and, um, but he comes from a running background and he was really badass. Actually, I was really impressed. Um, I started feeling a little bit crappy around 50 miles in. So what I did was, um, my, I felt both weak and my stomach hurt a little bit, I think. So what I did is I tried diluting the fuel. I had my fuel in concentrate, right? And this is in the Starkey interview where he said he's got a concentrated fuel bottle, but you need to dilute it before you drink it, right? So what I, I would take a sip off the concentrated fuel, and before swallowing it, I would uh, take a big chug of water. So I got both, and this is hard to do, so it's not my favorite plan. Um, I would get both in my mouth and then uh, swish it around so it would dilute it some and then swallow that. And that actually worked really well. In my notes, it says, that may be your big ticket, exclamation point. Okay, and then, uh, yeah, about halfway through the ride, maybe two-thirds through the ride, I started getting a leg cramp, and I never get leg cramps, but I always have salt in my fuel, and like I said, I lost my special bottle, my slow fuel, that had the salt in it, and um, I was like, oh, crap. Well, it turns out the salt stick um, dispenser that they make, I had it zip-tied to my aero bars, (laughs) And it's the one where you twist it and a capsule pops out the front of it eventually. And it was on there from my last race. And I was like, oh, holy cow. And so I twisted out um, a capsule and um, I crushed it up in my mouth until it broke open. And then I got that salty flavor in my mouth. It's A lot of it's mental and triggering that helps uh, distract your body from the cramp. And then uh, swished it around my mouth and got my mouth real salty and then uh, swallowed it with even more water. And then um, 
I swear it helped with the uh, cramp. Like it, uh, it kept the cramp away. And then about an hour later, I did it again with another uh, salt pill. So thank you, salt stick. That thing really works, and it saved my ass. That could have been, uh, you know, like a game changer for me. Um, it's hard to tell because I didn't have, you know, with it or without it. I just, I just did it. And but it was so cool that it was, um, it was uh, right there on my bars and super convenient. You know, I mean, oh my gosh, I was like super stoked. <laughs> It was one of those things where you're like, huh, holy crap, I got a solution to this problem. This is really neat. And yeah, it really worked. And um, on the uh, on the way back, I had a tailwind, right? And um, in triathlon, what you do is you get an arrow position into the wind and you burn burn a little bit hotter, a little bit harder into the wind to get through the wind faster or up a hill or whatever faster. And then on the way back, um, you can sit up uh, with the tailwind and relax your back and let the uh, let that do uh, the work for you um, because you're not having to fight as much resistance. So you're sailing along at a faster speed. And so I was sitting up a bunch on the way back and um, and uh, pedaling a whole lot easier and recovering from the effort going into the to the wind. And there's studies that show that that's actually the fastest way to cover a course. It's really cool. It's a um, big article in, uh, I forgot the name of the magazine, um, Bike Radar or something like that, about how the top time trialists know this, and it really works. It's the fastest thing. And um, uh, on occasion on the way back, I'd have to take a turn into the into the um, headwind into a headwind again, and I would just get right back into the aero position and make like a turtle, and get down low and start pedaling ha- harder into that to get through it, and then relax again when I had the tailwind back again. And um, I was riding the um, 808 front and rear, um, and on the 808 rear, I had a disc. Uh, wheel cover, which only costs like 80 bucks and you can, uh, it's so much cheaper than a disc wheel and you can slap it on any size wheel. And, um, oh my gosh, with the crosswinds, it was like sailing out there. It was so cool. Um, I dropped the last guy, probably Michael at mile 70. Eventually he couldn't keep up anymore. And so then I was solo, um, from mile 70 to mile 101 or 102, however many miles it was. And uh, that was pretty rad, uh, being finally all by myself, um, which I really enjoy. Uh, let's see, yeah, I had three and then two guys drafting off my back until 60 miles. Um, I was always in the front fighting the wind as the lead rider, uh, which I really enjoy. And um, the, uh, oh, hold on, I've got dogs. What's going on? Okay, I don't know what's going on. And then, um, yeah, my bike computer messed up. I went a little bit too hard at first, but I had I had to have the map on my watch because I didn't know where to go. <laughs> and it was cool being the being the guy with the map. Um, uh, I knew where all the turns were except for that one. I just plain missed it. Um, I would have figured it out, but after a few minutes, and uh, that was super great of Michael to help me out on that one. And then, um, yeah, my tip is uh, don't connect to your Garmin 510. Don't connect your Garmin 510 to a computer the day before the race, or if you do, um, 
turn it back on and watch what happens and make sure that everything's still there. You're probably going to have to pair it with everything all over again. All your screens are going to be messed up. Um, having a map, doing the map feature for navigation um, on my watch was awesome. And my notes has it in all caps. It was really, really, really cool to know where to turn ahead of time. I mean, I've never done that before for a race. And um, it was so useful because I, I didn't know there's a good half of that course that I've never really ridden a bike on. And I wasn't familiar with the area. I tried kind of memorizing the course some, and then I just gave up after a while looking at the map uh, back home and realized I just have to do this. Um, I'm going to, it could be make or break if, if I have this, um, this uh, map with me. And you're in the, you're riding, you know, kind of hard and fast. So where, you know, you're not going to pull a map out of your, if you pull a map out of your, out of your back, you could, you don't know where you are on the map, on a paper map. Um, but on the uh, digital map on your watch or on your bike computer, you know it, where you are versus where the course is. And um, the, the race had tons of turns and it had um, nobody at the turns, just little signs with an arrow. This is way out in the countryside, so uh, you're totally on your own. Uh, one other guy said he got he took a wrong turn and uh, went quite a ways, so that was super cool. Um, so basically, if you're doing a if you're doing an Ironman and you want to put the map course on your watch or your bike computer, uh, one thing I noticed after the um, after the event, the next day I went for a run or two or a bike ride or something like that. And my watch gave me an alert that it was running out of memory. So it doesn't have room for really long stuff for you to store in there. So you may just do just the um, the bike ride, you know, or something like that. But be, be wary that there's actually a size a limit, a space issue. Um, uh, let's see, when I finally broke free of the other group, and was riding by myself, that really felt awesome, especially because there was a pace car in front of me, and this is the second event that I've ever done on the bike where I actually had a pace car in front of me because I was in the lead uh, for a big chunk of it, and that makes you feel so cool, almost like there you should be on TV or something like that, and that was really, really neat. If you ever need motivation to train or to um, you know uh, do those intervals or whatever, just think that if you if you do it, uh, there's a chance that you might end up being the guy or girl in the in the lead, and you got a pace car in front of you because it really does happen. It's for real. It's out there. It's so cool. Um, uh, the cool one of the cool things about being alone out in the front is uh, you can ride just how you how you want to ride. You you quit reacting to everybody else and thinking about everybody else around you. You can be. Um, with yourself and do the everything the way you want to do it. It's really weird. And I hear pros talk about that in Ironman's uh the difference between, you know, being in a pack is good because you're kind of drafting, I mean, you know, lim- you know, legal distance drafting, you're with the group and stuff. But also being in the front, off the front um is fantastic as well uh because yeah, you can ride the way you want to and you can do the right things at the right time. When you need to, not when not reacting to everybody else, which is pretty cool. Um, let's see, doing a big bike event was really cool because I saw so many of my friends. Doing a local one was especially cool because I saw so many of my friends that live in my town, 
that are from all different walks of life, you know, that are just cyclists or just this or just that or just, you know, they do triathlon or they're, they're friends of Emily's or, you know, they're friends from work or it was just all around like super, super cool. Um, I don't know why, but in my notes here, it says, you know, for Ironman, you got to learn to ride alone. Um, there is a thing where you see people's uh, race reports and stuff where they, in, in Ironman, where they say, um, or training uh, training reports where they say, uh, it got real lonely out there on the bike. Well, now you need to get over that. You need to get to the point where you enjoy riding alone or being alone doesn't bother you uh, because... Um, it's just weird to me that people get like that, that they're, um, they, they get caught, they're out in the wind and they're riding, there's nobody to draft off of. And then they get desperate and start thinking, this is terrible. This is terrible. And actually that's a mindset that's, that is a choice. Um, you can, you can learn to actually enjoy being by yourself and, um, and, uh, not having the shelter of other riders or other riders in sight. Um, just riding by yourself. It's just so cool and, and uh, free. And you feel like you're actually accomplishing, you alone are accomplishing something. And it's pretty neat. Um, I did stop around 60 miles. I stopped in a, there's this aid station. And I got off my bike, peed in a port of can I, uh, <laughs> I uh, filled up my camelback with water. Um, and that was the only station that I stopped at. And then at the little table they had there, there were some locals there from uh, Somerville, Lake Somerville area. And I asked if they had any gels because uh, I was a little bit worried about running out of fuel. And they go, what are gels? And I go, okay, never mind. <laughs> and we both laughed. And uh, I got back on my bike and uh, started pedaling away. And immediately, within a quarter of a mile, there's a four-railroad-track-wide uh, trail uh, railroad track crossing and we had to sit there for probably like 15 minutes i'm not kidding for trains to decouple recouple decouple recouple move back and forth left and right left and right more trains left it's like a train uh rail yard and we're just there forever um and a couple riders uh caught up with me and uh that was uh crappy man i was like i wasn't pissed i mean i was kind of like we we were like what oh and then it got to be funny, and then it got to be not funny, and then it got to be funny again, and then eventually it all cleared up, and then we got to cross the railroad tracks, um, which was, uh, they said next year, you know, either they're going to alter the course or give people tokens for however many minutes they uh, were caught behind or something, you know, stuck at the railroad track or whatever, but I wasn't really that worried about it. And then um, it stops me, and it stops everybody else that's kind of with me. So we're all kind of um, in the same boat. It didn't really uh, bother me that much. Um, while we were waiting on the train, I did something pretty cool. I had sunscreen, spray-on sunscreen, in my, um, in my jersey pocket. And I pulled it out and applied sunscreen to my face and the tops of my legs and my calves. And I kind of sprayed my arm coolers as well a little bit. And... Uh, <laughs> And I never ended up getting any sunburn or too much sun or anything like that. So it was actually uh, really cool. I uh, made good use of the time, you know. And let's see. I have notes for uh, next time. Because uh, it seems like they're going to be next year too. I'm totally going to sign up for it again. 
my biggest note is make double sure <laughs> in caps. Your bike computer is working so you don't have to go as so you don't go as hard at the beginning by accident because you couldn't see your heart rate in watts. Um, and then my other notes, I got three other notes. Uh, don't go quite as hard off the front um, at the beginning. Because I guess I went, yeah, I, I struggled a little bit in the middle and on the way back um, from being a little bit tired and had to kind of rest more than I wanted to to kind of recuperate. And then I ended up being fine, but um, I was redlining it and uh, didn't know it. Uh, I hear it says definitely wear a camelback again. Um, that was smart. And uh, change up how you do water and fuel. Uh, losing that bottle was total bullshit is what it says in my nose. So I need to figure out, you know, what was going on with that and, uh, why that bottle flew out of my, uh, um, behind the cage, behind the seat cage. Cause I can't have that happen in Ironman, um, Canada. That's crap. Um, but definitely, uh, that interview with Starkey, um, where he says he takes that concentrate and he squirts, uh, um, a certain amount of it into the between the arrow bars bottle. He said he used tour hands. Um, that way it dilutes into that and he drinks that. Um, that's really, really smart. And uh, I think that's what I'm going to do next time around. So in general, um, those are my notes. Uh, I was definitely, like I was talking about the Stark interview, I'm super competitive when I decide to be. And I'm very planning and meticulous uh, about what I do, and sometimes it works, and it looks like this time it worked. I totally took advantage of the situation, and oh, I talked to my bike shop a few days later about something else in general. I was on the phone with them, asking them about the bike build, and they go, man, you won that thing, and I go, yeah, thanks. It was great. I had a great time, and they're like, yeah, so they noticed, you know, and um, it made for a fun conversation. So it all paid off. Every once in a while, all the work pays off at some point. <laughs> all right. So that's that's the uh, wrap-up, and uh, let's move on to the next section of the show. All right. That was a nice little wrap-up of the BCS Grand Fondo. And let's go ahead and get rolling with uh, some donations and supporters and stuff like that before we get uh, into the training log. And on the training log, I think I fail miserably on a run, and then I come back the next day and do a whole lot better, and I explain uh, how and why. And why I do the podcast, I think, is in there. That's just a bunch of random stuff. Lots of tips and tricks that are very valuable. So let's go ahead and say that we've got a donation from Tyler Moyer and Peter uh, Salzen, who actually I coach, and I got him started using a drag shoot, and he loves it. Had a guy at the pool today just flip out over the drag shoot. Uh, longtime donor Spiros Fetsis, Richard Trago, uh, Joseph Deber or Diber, Dwayne Morin, Boki Boki from Claremont, and that's a cool name. I've never heard that one before. Uh, what's up, Joseph Rogalski? Sent in a donation. Uh, James Von Hippel and Houston Marsh. Uh, it's always the name always throws me uh, because <laughs> Houston's the Bayou City and his name is Houston Marsh. That's kind of funny. And uh, then I'm always when I see a note from him, I'm always like, is that Brandon Marsh? Is Houston Marsh? Who's what's going on? Oh, and I had a chat with Brandon Marsh over uh, Twitter the other day, which was pretty cool. Uh, it seems like he's doing all right. And let's see the um, 
The other thing that we need to mention... Oh, well, you can help donate to the show on the side. Uh, there's a link to uh, PayPal where you can send in a one-time or a recurring donation that way. But what's really interesting is... Uh, People keep telling me I need to start a Patreon, and we may switch over completely to Patreon uh, instead of these donations because on Patreon, I can put stuff behind a paywall, and you donate to the show, well, you've got, now you're behind the paywall, and you can, I can put tons of stuff up there that um, if people that are really interested would really like, and it's worth it, you know, to put it up there. So I've got two years of backlog shows. I need to put some more years up there. Um, I don't think anybody's finished it. Uh, and then um, the year 2011 shows are just insane, absolutely insane. And um, also, when I recorded the Andrew Starkowitz uh, interview that you just heard, I put the raw version of it up behind the paywall, and I'm planning on doing that with uh, future interviews if I think people would really like to hear them early and it's worth it. And my next interview that's coming up that's scheduled, I haven't recorded it yet, I always say, should say it's scheduled, is uh, Matt Fitzgerald, the author of Iron War and Diet Cults. And he's got a new book, I believe it's called How Bad Do You Want It? I've been listening listening to it on audible.com and it's really good, really, really good. Um, it's the details of sports psychology uh, and what drives you and by using examples of people throughout uh, endurance sport history. And uh, so it's both storytelling and facts and psychology, like all wrapped into one. And it's like eight hours long and it's on audible.com. And I'm really enjoying listening to it. And it's read by Matt. So it's pretty cool. So we're going to have him on either the next episode or the one after that. But anyway, uh, I'm probably going to take that interview and the raw version of it and put it up on Patreon. So you can go to patreon.com, and it's either slash Zentry. I'm not at the internet right now, so I can't uh, look. Or uh, uh, patreon.com slash Zentrathlon. I can't uh, remember which one it is. But when people sign up to support through uh, Patreon, I get a message as well. And here are some. Ben S. sent in a note, and it said, Hey, Brett, thanks for all the hard work you put into creating the show every week. I am new to long-distance triathlon ultramarathons, and have become quickly captivated by the training and sense of accomplishment. Why didn't I figure out I loved endurance sports sooner? Question mark. Anyway, your training tips are insightful and the interviews are a fascinating look behind people's success. Love the show and glad to support it. That was a really nice email. Oh, and by the way, on Twitter, I'm on twitter.com as uh, Zen Triathlon. I... Uh, I don't know how I've stumbled across it, but some of my oldest blog posts on Zen Triathlon, um, I found the one of when I did my second ever Iron Baby. So the first year I did Iron Baby um, as a self-supported Ironman, my son was born two and a half months early, and I was going to do this race that was Ironman distance called the True Texan or something like that. And oh my God, I'm so glad I didn't do that because man, that thing would have been hilly. It was out in the hill country in uh, central west Texas, uh, well, they just call it the hill country around here, northwest of Austin in Bernie. It's brutal out there. Um, and, man, that would have been a mistake. But anyway, uh, when Kai was born early, I um, he had to be in the hospital for a while. And then once we got everything kind of settled down, I went off and did my own um, Ironman uh, to show that if somebody would let me do something because of the dad, you know, they just tell you to sit tight and you get kind of frustrated. And I thought I had trained for an Ironman. 
<laughs> I really hadn't trained it anywhere near enough. And uh, so I went out and did an Ironman and dedicated it to uh, the effort I was seeing everybody else put in to help save my son. And I called it the Iron Baby. That was year one, and it took me like 17 and a half, 18 hours or something. I don't know. I just had no idea what I was doing, and it was uh, really rough, really bad. And then uh, the link I posted on Twitter uh, this Thursday was the one to the second year I did it. I've done 10 of them now. Uh, every I've done one almost every year. And the uh, I skipped one year for Wisconsin in 2007, Ironman Wisconsin. And the... Um, and Kai's 11, so yeah, I'm, uh, I've done 10, I think. And the, um, the one up there is photos, pictures, the weather, the weather graph, uh, my bike, a description, uh, super detailed, uh, well, not super, medium detailed about what I did and how long it took, and it took me 15 and a half hours, and the equipment I used, and the Garmin 201 or something like that I was using, and an Ironman Timex watch for the swim, and how I got it done. And it's so cool, man. So look for that link uh, that I posted on Twitter back, um, what's today's date? Uh, May 5th is probably when I posted it. Uh, and I'm, it's just super crazy cool. Um, so since then, I have been, do- and I'd already started doing the podcast, I uh, have been giving training tips and how to get things done since way back then. And my whole point is that I went from a probably would have been disqualified from doing my very first Ironman for taking too long, just by like a few minutes. I don't, or I would have just come under the wire or something. I don't know. Um, but I did it totally on my own in taking 17, 18 hours or something to, um, getting them down to like 11 hours and then doing an Ultraman and all that stuff over time. And I documented it with tips and tricks as I've gotten better over the years, over, um, 10, 11 years. And, uh, it's awesome. Right from the beginning, I went back and looked at that thing right from the beginning. I was trying to describe to people how I did it so that other people can do it too. And also my point being that I used to suck at it and just with, uh, dedication and um, really wanting it and trying to improve and consistency year after year after year. Um, I finally got to where I'm, uh, I've been uh, uh, USAT Nationals for the shorter stuff and then um, longer stuff like Ironmans and, and whatever, half Ironmans. I'm in the, the Ironman does this like all world athlete thing that's like the top whatever percent. And I've been doing, I've been ranked up in there over the past few years. And it's so awesome that it's possible. It's absolutely possible. And I did not come from a biking or a running background. I came from a swimming background. So my biking and running was pretty bad. That, that bike in year two was a 16 mile per hour average, 16.0 mile per hour average. And I probably walked most of the marathon. And, uh, yeah, so now, uh, way better, uh, now, and you can too. So keep listening to the podcast as I, uh, keep trying to build the triathlon community and, 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 uh, break down and dispel the mysteries of how to do this. It's, uh, it's actually pretty simple and there's just a million ways that it's pretty simple. So show after show after show, you can kind of start putting together the puzzle for yourself. You have to do it. It, uh, you shouldn't do it exactly the way I'm doing it. The, um, but you get an idea of how somebody's doing it 
and then uh, you can start doing it yourself or maybe you're almost there or you're kind of there and you're looking for the bits of information um, this is this is the show for it and I'm glad to be doing it all right um, Matt Mahone sent in uh, or supported through patreon uh, Brad Hammond what's up dude and Dan Gray and Sam Pier- Pearson and Jason Eagleston um, was asking he did a patreon supporting donation, whatever they call it. And they, um, he asked about MCT oil. You go to the grocery store and buy coconut MCT oil. And he asked, you know, I, well, he said, I hear you use it all the time or talking about it all the time. How much do you use? And I said, you know, honestly, I wrote him an email back and I said, honestly, I don't use it all that much. Um, I've gone uh, way too deep in the high, all, all high fat all the time and not enough carbs. And that makes you feel like crap. And uh, then I backed off and then you can get back addicted to carbs again. So there's kind of like a middle ground in between. And I really liked what Chris Haig said a few episodes ago where you, you use MT, MCT oil uh, sparingly, kind of like to make uh, fuel digest just a tiny bit better but be careful. Rich Roll, who's a great friend of Zentri, uh, I'll never forget him saying that he's just not that big into oils. You know, that once you break the oil away from the food, well, now it's kind of like a processed food and it's not all that great for you. But if the oil is in the food, say like nuts, uh, the fat, the oil, uh, nuts, avocado, olives, well, now you're getting your fat and it's kind of with the food and now it's like a whole food. And it's a little bit better for you. But anyway, um, you can Gatorade powder, uh, maltodextrin powder. You know, if that's like your fuel, you shake it up in a bottle. Um, and it's high-powered, you know, rocket fuel, you know, super sugary. Um, yeah, you could add, I think the breaking, the breaking point's a little bit different for um, different people. But it seems like a tablespoon per hour is going to... Apparently, it lubes up your guts, and it makes you just crap out your insides and right into your shorts. So that's probably too much. And maybe even half a tablespoon might be too much per hour. You know, over time, it just starts to add up. If you're doing like a four-hour ride, now you're taking in two tablespoons of of, uh, MCT oil if you're doing half. So I would experiment with it. Um, the whole thing with MCT oil, it's a me- MCT stands for medium cha- chain triglyceride. So it's not, um, oh, it's not a saturated fat, and it's not a whatever the other kind of fat is. Um, it's in between. It's medium, and your your it goes through your intestines and can be processed by the liver into energy, um, separate from the channel that is the, all the sugary stuff, right? So it allows you to get in extra calories on top of the carbs that you're taking in. Uh, so wouldn't it be nice if you could get, while you're, while you're racing, to get in an extra 50 calories per hour or something like that um, on top of the, uh, the sugary stuff? Because um, you only have so many channels to import you know, fuel in with. Uh, you got... Uh, different carb channels and then maybe this maybe for some people or a lot of people this MCT medium chain oil channel could be used to absorb more calories to give you more energy and um, then the problem with heavier fats is uh, with different fats is apparently you can't digest them fast enough and they just kind of bog you down supposedly experts say and professional triathletes a lot of times say it's just uh, skip the fat um 
in your fuel uh, because you got to be going really slow for you to absorb it. So let's say you're doing Ultraman just to finish or you're doing a um, 100 mile trail run just to finish and you're going to keep your heart rate like super, super low and you're going to walk a lot. Or let's say on Uberman that we're talking about um, on the bike and you're doing a major downhill section and you're just kind of coasting along, then you would uh, you know, go into the, to the different fats uh, because now your body's relaxed enough where it can actually digest them, theoretically. So there's all that. All right. Whew. That's enough of the donation stuff. Um, yeah. Uh, don't forget about... Did I mention Hornet Juice already in a commercial during the interview? Anyway, go check out Hornet Juice. Stuff is awesome. Absolutely awesome. It's so great. And let's go ahead and get started with the training log. Here we go. You are entering the Zentrite training log zone. Kuneli. Hi, everybody. My name is Brett. I'm a triathlete. I decided it's time I got some friends more suited to my status. But, Joe, we've been friends for years. Hey, we all make mistakes. Come on, dudes. Let's go exercise. Exercise. I'm going to do sit-ups till I poop myself. All right. Welcome to a new training low. Start eight, May 2nd. Man, I am super stoked about this uh, Starkey interview that I got in and going to post it up on Patreon, which is super cool. And let's see, did uh, a lot of swimming this morning, really tired in the legs. So you go to the pool and knock out some upper body, specifically uh, with the drag shoot, which I love. You can get one on finis.com. Uh, check it out. It's really awesome. It really works the upper body, allows your lower body to uh, chill, which is nice. You need a little break. And also, it provides resistance, so you can torque it up when uh, you uh, don't want to drive your heart rate up, but you want to provide, yeah, torque, kind of like swimming uphill. Um, very, very cool. Because otherwise, to get that much resistance, you'd have to swim at a fast pace. And that also drives your heart rate up and requires a lot of breathing. Um, it's kind of like if you go lift weights, you're not really going to be aerobic, right? You're going to be anaerobic, but you're improving yourself. So this is kind of like a hybrid between the two. That's my that's my uh, sales pitch on the drag shoot. And then uh, this weekend, got in a bunch of running I was cruising along, feeling great, and then I decided to put Zoe on the leash, and she's a dragger, and even though she's lightweight, you pop the uh, leash to get her to stop. Well, Kai is out ahead on his bike, so she wants to chase him, and uh, I went home at lunch today, and she's dug up some stuff, and that'll be fun. I took pictures of it, and I'm going to send it to Emily and say, look, your new daughter is a gardener. Check her out. She's not going to like that because she tore up a bush. It's pretty funny. And then um, the cool thing about running near your house is you got to get over the uh, belief that once you start running, you can't stop. You can swing back by the house, drop off the dog, uh, pick up more water, you know, whatever it takes. Uh, it all counts. So that is, uh, once I got over that belief that uh, a lot of people, I was helping, I was coaching somebody start running. And they're like, well, when I run too far, it hurts. And I'm like, well, stop running, you know, walk. People are in this uh, belief system that once they start running, they got to keep running and keep running even faster. 
And uh, now nah, you can mix in walking, you can cut it short, uh, swing by your house and get water. You know, there's all different kinds of things you can do that uh, will help you out and give you better workouts. Uh, the the new Zentri Trek Speed concept is supposedly being wrapped up, which I'm very excited about. Maybe we'll have that soon. Kai keeps asking me. Uh, the Ultegra Di2 shifting is uh, being shipped in, and then they got to put it on. But I got financing. I'm having to take out a loan, guys, to uh, get this bike. <laughs> but it's like the one thing that I'm into is cycling. That costs any money, so I'm. Uh, it's okay with me to to spend money on this. Uh, and speaking of costs and stuff, the um, the crew is starting to get together for uberman i got two guys i got three guys actually morgan eric and alex are all uh, talking about helping out with uh, uberman october 20th five six seven days in uh, california and uh, go check it out uberman1.com number one.com to get the full gist and yeah i'm starting to need to get that crew together so i need people to get in touch with me and uh, tell me what they think. Oh, and the coolest thing was uh, I got Kai to um, bike with me on a trainer next to me. He's got a little road bike. Put him on his road bike next to my tri-bike. And we um, we rode side-by-side side on the trainer for a while. And I let him play uh, Forza, which is a car racing game, while he played. Uh, while he rode his bike. And... Um, that was fun. I took a little video and posted that on Instagram or Twitter, uh, Zen Triathlon on Twitter and the uh, and Instagram, Instagram. And uh, he, I said, okay, it's been been 10, 15 minutes of playing. And he's just sitting upright. He's not even trying hard. He's not breaking a sweat or anything. And I said, okay, now let's switch it over to a TV show. And what we do is we pedal easy during the show. And then during the commercials, put it in a harder gear and pedal to that. And that'll be a little interval. And he said, okay. So uh, all together, we rode an hour side by side. What were we watching? We were watching something really funny. Some kind of uh, funniest home videos. And uh, we were cracking up, like watching this stuff. And then it would get to commercial. And then we'd say, all right, let's buckle down. And uh, just all you got to do is put it in just one harder gear. And then that's your little interview uh, interval, and then you, um, yeah, you go back to uh, riding easy again, uh, watching the show, and uh, yeah, just back and forth like that. And when it hit an hour, he was done, and I, um, I kept going for another half hour. I'd also run for two hours that morning, um, except for Zoe hurting my foot, making my foot hurt by pulling me over a little bit while running. Um, everything was really, really great. And I have to say, again, there really is something to the math method, the maximum aerobic, I always want to say function, <laughs> function, maximum aerobic function, um, where it's uh, 180 beats minus your age is a good starting place. Uh, you can go a little bit higher by a few beats to five beats. Uh, if you've got tons of aerobic experience and you're in really good shape, uh, and a few beats less if you're um, if you're out of shape, trying to get into shape. So for me, the breaking point seems to be about 100 and 
and 40 beats per minute. And I'm sitting there writing. As long as I keep it in the 135 range, 136, 137, 138, um, I can fuel and pedal. And that fuel uh, puts out lots of torque, you know, feels good. Everything's going well. And then when I go over 140, um, uh, heart rate, it really it has a limited time before you're going to explode because you can't eat anymore. At that point, more blood goes to your muscles than goes to your stomach. Or, I don't know if it's more, but the amount of blood that now goes to your muscles and instead of your stomach... Um, makes it so that you can't digest fuel and the fuel starts backing up and your muscles start getting depleted and also you start getting sick to your stomach, all that stuff. So the real trick in endurance is to get really good at just below that heart rate because at just below that heart rate, you can fuel and you can hammer like pretty good uh, and go for forever because you're fueling. And once you, uh, once you get over that, your, uh, your time is limited. And that's okay if you're doing an interval or you're doing a race and you're going up a hill and you need to push it to get up over that hill. But um, you want your heart rate to come back down again so that uh, you can digest the fuel and, and keep on trucking. It's magical. It's really, really cool. It's so cool sitting on the treadmill or on the uh, trainer and watching it in effect. If you go back, if you look at um, Strava, yeah, I'm uh, who am I on Strava? Well, I'm Zintri Brett or something on Strava. <laughs> it's easy to find me, Brett Blankner on Strava. If you look out for the workout on um, May 1st on the bike, um, you can see where the, I don't know, the last hour of that hour and a half, I'm dancing around kind of the 140 heart rate up and below and up and below. The power is awesome, but you, but you can tell I'm kind of like feeling up and around there to kind of see uh, what I can do. And it's a perfect place to be training yourself. It's really, really cool because the more you do it, the better you get at it. All right, that's enough. I need to get into W to the ERK. Out, bang. I'm out running. And actually, I quit. I'm on a uh, a undeveloped road. There's going to be houses on this in a couple years. And uh, there's woods on either side. Every once in a while, we might hear crickets and tree frogs and stuff. Cicadas. There's some people way over there. My watch is freaking out. It's like, what are you doing? Why aren't you running? But I got started running. My legs felt really weak and wobbly and muscles had pain in them so I did the difficult thing and quit I ran almost 30 minutes and I just decided you know what I'm done <laughs> oh, legs hurt too much to keep going had symptoms the past couple days of legs hurting um, had a cramp almost in my um, hold on I'm about to sneeze I had a cramp in my left thigh, upper thigh, in the quad, and uh, that was unusual. Um, not a cramp, a strain, like it started to, um, like I almost pulled a muscle. I had a calf strain the other day, 
that I had to work through. And now when running where the muscles hurt and then your legs start feeling wobbly, like you're starting to lose control of them a little bit, that's bad. Bad stuff. Here comes a car. So I cut it short, but I do have an upside. I wanted to share a podcast with you. I'm listening to The One You Feed. Um, it's a pretty decent podcast. I listen to it now and then. It kind of depends on the subject. And uh, there's an interview with Dan Harris, and it's about how to communicate effectively. And these guys are big into uh, Buddhism and Zen and, and uh, calmness and coolness. And it's, it's uh, really cool, the conversation about how to communicate uh, correctly. So a lot about Zen is to say the right thing at the right time. Um, if you don't, it's kind of like if you don't have anything good to say, don't say anything at all. I'm walking through concrete right here, big concrete mess. And uh, so you don't say anything harmful. You tell the truth. But if the truth is hurtful or harmful, then you try not to say anything or say something else. You know, because you could, if you always spoke the truth, well, the truth could be mean to somebody or damaging or hurtful. And uh, so you don't say it then. And then I've noticed a lot of these podcasts that are about achieving happiness and Zen and whatever are by. Middle-aged people, mostly guys, but there's some women one, women ones too. But I think there's something when guys, and maybe girls, but definitely guys. I'm not a girl, I can't speak for y'all. But uh, we reach middle age and we, we get a shift. Like we learn, we start learning the strategy of how the value of better communication and how the world gets better. Get start getting a little bit of wisdom. Wisdom is experience, and you can't have experience until you reach a, a certain age. And um, and a lot of these podcasts are by people that are were really frustrated at one point and uh, figured out, or they're on the path trying to figure out <laughs> something. A better way in life. I know with Zentri, I started it because I had my whole life pulled out from under me and I had to start all over again. I was living in San Diego. I had my dream job, dream city, dream life. Things were going good. Whole thing went down the crapper. I had to start all over again and move back to a tiny little prairie town uh, with nothing outdoorsy anywhere near around. I was absolutely miserable. So I started practicing Zen and coming to terms with things and finding enjoyment in uh, right here, right now. And as soon as I started doing that, well, not as soon, but it took me a while to kind of figure out what these Zen people are even talking about. Then seeing the beauty and everything, anything and everything all around, I started to appreciate really where I was and what I was doing. And so now I'm a middle-aged guy doing a podcast, <laughs> trying to explain to myself what happened, I think, by talking out loud about it. And uh, 
there's a lot of really big podcasts out there where the hosts admit the whole reason they started was so that they could have a reason to have interviews with with people that are uh, that could help them. And uh, that's what I did. That's what we're all doing. It's a great thing. All right. I had to also I had to cut my run a little bit short because I got a late start because I had to help Kai build uh, a first order tie tie fighter out of Legos, which was really cool. I'm gonna post a picture of that on uh, Instagram. All right, that's it. Out, Bing. I'm almost to my house. Oh, there's something I should add. I've been doing podcasts since the very, 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 very beginning. Way before iTunes even saw them on their radar. Before there was an iTunes, maybe? Before there was an iPhone? Any of that stuff. And uh, the very first podcasts that were out there were um, a lot of the biggest ones were people just talking to themselves about what they were doing. And one of the biggest ones, I'll never forget, the host said that he was visiting a psychologist or psychiatrist, probably psychologist, and uh, that he told the psychologist that he was recording his thoughts as a show, as a podcast, you know. Of course, nobody knew what that was, but, you know, for a radio, internet radio show for everybody, he's just walking around his apartment talking about what he was working on, kind of a tech show. And uh, the psychologist said, uh, that's a... That's a really good idea. And the whole theory is, if you write something out or if you talk something out into a recorder, then you kind of have to formulate your random scattered bullshit thoughts that are kind of loosely connected into a coherent message. And when you verbalize them or write them down, you're forced to actually uh, look at them. And then when they either make sense, you're like, okay, I'm going to stick with that. Or if they don't make sense, then uh, you either keep them or drop them. And it's actually a self-improvement technique. You know, that's kind of like what journaling does. So the very early podcasts were kind of like, a lot of them still are, or just this one is, are kind of journals about what's going on. And it's just as much for the host as it is for the audience it's really interesting oh, so don't start a podcast unless you have major issues or else you'll pod fade alright that's it I gotta go inside Out, ping. back at the house alright it is the next morning Thursday morning after last night's run failure I went to bed I ate some ice cream Feeling sorry for myself, but not too bad. And then uh, went to bed at around 9.30, 9.45. A really good thing to make you feel better about yourself. Scientific study show is go to reddit.com, R-E-D-D-I-T, and look at funny videos <laughs> or GIFs, animated GIFs section, subreddits or is what they're called. Makes you feel better, makes you laugh. Went to bed around 9.30, maybe 10, and then woke up at 4.30, got my ass in gear, felt kind of jogged around the living room see how the legs felt they felt a lot better had more energy just all around better and went for a run and got rid of carrying a water bottle in my hand and said put it on my waist 
Let's go inside. Here's a little doggy. Hello! How are y'all little freaks doing? Oh, oh. That's Zoe. Okay, I'm here. It's all good. It's all cool. And what did y'all tear up? Nothing yet. Not here by yourselves long enough. And I ran nine miles, nine and a half miles. And the last many miles, maybe five or so, uh, I was running sub 10. The last few sub nine, just jogging along, really paying attention to form. I've got plantar fasciitis in my feet a little bit, but I've got a heel spur because I've had plantar fasciitis so long in my left foot. Uh, so I'm paying attention to form. What makes it hurt? What makes it not hurt? So uh, I kind of figured out that running downhill, uh, I, I lean back and that bangs my heel into the ground and I think it activates my calves differently uh, to slow myself down. And that's also why running with a dog that's pulling me, I have to run leaning back a little bit and um, that's pushing back and that uh, makes my heel hurt. And that's why I haven't been doing that for a few runs. And I noticed that helps a lot. And then, um, yeah, so uh, really paying attention to form. And then also after I get about six, seven miles in, I start getting a little bit tired. Form starts to change. I start getting, I start leaning back uh, instead of leaning forward. And so I mess with my upper body and head position. They can be different. You can lean forward with your chest, keep your head back. You can... Keep your chest straight up, lean your head forward a little bit, uh, you know, do stuff with your shoulders. But the whole goal is like on the bike, you want to find a very neutral position so that your feet land mostly flat and you kind of roll over the front and you're not breaking yourself with your heel and, uh, but also not pushing off too much with your forefoot. You want to distribute the force, distribute, use the force, distribute the force evenly and then that um, will give you a longer run with less pain because, you know, force spread out over a wide area won't hurt you anywhere near as bad as force pinpointed in a smaller area. And, uh, yeah, I'm really proud of myself. So the lesson is, uh, you feel like crap, cancel your run, get a good amount of sleep, cancel your workout, get a good amount of sleep, uh, try it, try it out again tomorrow. It may take a day, day and a half. And uh, things will be good. <sighs> All right. Now i got to get my, my stuff together here. I'm taking care of the house this morning. And got to get to the W to the ERK. My Garmin's buzzing at me. Hey, I want to see my workout. Nah, nah. Let's see what I did. Hold on. Uh, my first mile was pretty slow because I was running a little bit uphill. And, um, you know, warming up. First few miles. But I don't really count those. Um, nine and a half miles in one hour and a half. I averaged a nine twenty six pace. Uh, yeah, feels pretty good. Feel great. Okay, out thing. Hello, hello. All right, on my way to go swim. I had a couple interesting things happen. Uh, one was I had a Twitter back and forth real short with Amelia Boone. Amelia Boone, B O O. N E and she's a superstar Spartan beast champion uh, and becoming an ultra runner and then ended up uh, breaking her leg while training 
for the, she got into the Western States 100 and uh, very typical thing um, getting new into something something big and long and uh, you end up injuring yourself uh, from overtraining I guess kind of depends I'm not her I don't know everything she's doing um, another thing is it's really interesting Maka Chris McCormick I remember him saying you know he's whatever time champion of uh, Kona and all kinds of stuff uh, that when people show up at races and they're too skinny they're too fragile they uh, they're not going to do well and uh, a couple of recent pictures of Amelia Boone looked like she was uh, really really thin which helps with ultra running but well it helps with running but ultra running you um, the best athletes tend to be a little bit more uh, have a little bit more weight on them because you got to be tough you know to go 100 miles on trails so a little bit more you know like a greyhound is super skinny to go really fast for a short distance um, and they're a bit fragile and that's okay because they're not going very far but um, a Dalmatian is bred to run 20 something miles a day for real that's what they're bred for and they're a little bit stockier heavier set so that they uh, can withstand the pounding that they're going to take and I noticed in a couple pictures of Amelia that she looked a little bit thin and uh, I'm uh, it's just advice out there to people that um, man you're training for this ultra ultra endurance stuff uh, be careful of, of getting too thin because your resources for repair are stretched too thin um, and then you can end up getting injured I'm not saying that's what happened I'm just saying it was just a, a casual observation totally from the armchair and you know not worth anything <laughs> but it just made me think of that I, the times I've gotten too thin uh, then you feel weak and tired and then you can end up injuring yourself and let's see uh, a little bit of zen for you is um, just now while uh, driving to the um, driving to the pool I take off my rings sometimes uh, uh, well I've set my ring down my Aggie ring which is you know a school ring which if you go to Texas A&M you, you wear your Aggie ring for the rest of your life uh, it's a thing I know it doesn't make sense but A&M is a little bit of a weird school and um, the uh the ring rolled off of where I set it on my dashboard for a second down under the seat of the car and there's literally it's dark there's literally nothing I can do to find it I could pull over right now it's bothering me so there's two choices I could either pull over and find it now to end the um the agony it's really interesting being self-observant and watching myself be real this anxiety like where is it where did it, where did it go where did it go but at the same time practicing there's a right time to find it because I'm going to stop when I get to the pool parking lot anyway. And, uh, and then I can turn on more lights, be more patient in a safe place and look for it. And that's the right time. So practicing not, you practice with little things. And then when the big things come, then you're better at being patient and waiting for the right time. Zen is appropriate response, right? So, uh, I'm now at the parking lot and we're going to see if we can find my ring in the bottom of my car. And that's it. I'll be back later. Out, bang. Alright, I'm back. Guy just pulled up in a truck next to me. But, um, I found it real quick. There's a trick. If you're trying to find stuff in the dark, uh, turn off most of the lights. It's stuff that Something that's shiny or could be shiny. Like a school ring or like glass in your tires. You, uh, turn off 
most of the lights, all the lights, and then um, use a pinpoint light, like the light on your iPhone, which is what I just did, or like a flashlight or something like that, and then uh, look for it, and the glint will show up. It'll be, uh, I was about to say accelerated, accentuated, and you can um, then find things more easily. And I learned this trick from looking for, a tip I learned from looking for uh, glass in your tires. Before every ride outside, or any ride, you should just do a spin of your tires real slowly and look for uh, shards of glass in your tires. Because it actually takes many miles of riding for glass to work itself through. And I'm organizing things here. And you will... Um, You'll pick up glass one ride, but it'll be the next ride, eventually, where it uh, wears itself through and gives you a flat. So if you start off every ride looking for glass, um, and also when you're stopping for water, it's a nice time to spin your tires and look for glass, and uh, you'll um, <sighs> trying to get all my stuff together here. You'll. Um, you'll notice a piece of glass and pick it out before it cuts all the way through your tube. It's pretty cool. And uh, that's how I just found my ring that was in the bottom of my car. And then that leads me back to, uh, shut off the microphone, I'm like, oh yeah, I forgot the whole point of the Amelia Boone thing. Was with a broken leg, she's looking to swim. She posted on Twitter, uh, hey, anybody have any tips to drive my heart rate up while swimming without, uh, because the pool boy, she can't kick, and the pool boy is, um, uh, not enough, apparently, to uh, drive her heart rate up. And I tweeted her back and said, yeah, drag shoot. Thing will um, drive your heart rate up real nice. And then the thing I want to tell everybody else on the podcast listening now is that the, one of the coolest things that I didn't think about until I started using the drag shoot is that it makes your pool longer. You don't like it that you're in a 25-yard pool or 25-meter pool. The drag shoot slows you down so much that it makes your pool um, actually longer because it takes you longer to get to the other side. It makes it effectively longer, um, which is really cool. It turns your 25-yard pool into like a 40-yard pool. <laughs> it's pretty cool. All right, out, bang. All right, let's go ahead and wrap up the show. I went by the bike shop and checked on the new Trek that they're uh, putting together for me, the Trek Speed Concept with Ultegra electronic DI2, Shimano DI2 shifting and uh, the mechanic had it up on the stand and was uh, assembling it, putting it together. It was funny, a coworker of mine was in that bike shop uh, over the weekend and said, there was a bike in there for $3,800. So that to myself going, uh, yeah, the one I'm getting uh, is even worse than that. But the, uh, the cool thing about uh, the track is the, um, Oh, all the fit options and oh man I can't wait to have it and on the show and uh, going over um, the, the electronic shifting and sharing that with the audience over whether it's a plus or a minus and how much it is plus or minus whether you know you should get it or not or save your money um, I'm really into it because having the shifting uh, out on the um out on the handles, out on the bullhorns, the handlebars, where your brake levers are. I can't wait to experience that after all these years. 
Um, I first started out doing triathlons on a Schwinn Latour, like a 1986 or something like that, Schwinn Latour, um, where the shifting was on the down tube. And, of course, shifting had evolved since then, since they made that bike. And I started doing triathlons in 2003. But um, that's where I started off, shifting on the down tube. That's how old I am. Of course, I was in middle school when that bike was made. And to move all the way up to electronic shifting by button clicks <laughs> in two different places on the bike is, uh, it just blows my mind, you know. And what's coming next, man? What's coming next? Who knows? Oh, I can't wait. All right, sorry, I'm back. I had to take a short little break there. <laughs> I went home for lunch right in that little blip and, uh, let the, the new dog, uh, well, checked on the new dog to make sure she hasn't dug completely under the foundation of the house. And uh, also uh, started watching some YouTube videos on um, DI2 shifting, uh, you know, how it's set up on triathlon bikes. And gosh, it's so cool. I am so excited. And while I was uh, watching those videos, I was working on Kai's uh, cycling shoes. He's outgrown uh, one pair of shoes into another. And what's so great about being on a kid's team is um, they uh, swap out bike parts and bikes. You know, you buy stuff used because there's a few kids that are older than yours and they want to sell their stuff. The parents want to sell their stuff. So Kai's on his second pair of uh, cycling shoes. Uh, that are carbon sold actually and uh got them both used you know for probably for like either nearly free or maybe 25 bucks or 50 bucks or 100 i doubt 100 probably 50 and uh i don't know, emily got them uh for them and so i was changing out those cleats shimano cleats while i'm watching these videos on uh electronic shifting that's what happens when you become an age grouper with kids is uh you could be out for your lunchtime workout, but you're uh, working on your own kid's stuff instead. And But it's it's even more fulfilling or as fulfilling uh, than otherwise uh, because the stuff you're doing is helping somebody that you care about uh, get better and they can't do it or they won't do it. And so you're doing it for them. And then when you see them actually uh, have fun and enjoy it and get better, and it feels good inside. It's like you had that good workout yourself. Same feeling. It's really cool. And uh, people always want to know uh, food stuff. It's, it's so weird how uh, interesting food food is to everybody else. People want to know what you eat. <laughs> I think people are, in their minds are always comparing. You know, what did, what does this person eat? What does that person eat? So for lunch, I made uh, some scrambled eggs. I made. I did not eat, but I made two scrambled eggs. I ate one of them. Um, in a coffee mug in the microwave. I did avocado oil first in the coffee mug and smeared it around so the egg wouldn't stick to the coffee mug. And uh, two eggs, a little bit of 2% milk, which is just what I happened to have laying around. Uh, blend them up with a spoon, throw it in the microwave, 45 seconds, stir it up again, back in the microwave for almost 45 seconds until you see it start to almost foam out the top. It's really funny when it does it cook over the top of the coffee mug. The ceramic of the coffee mug re-radiates the heat uh, back into the eggs. It's really wild. Somebody needs to make a ceramic 
a cylinder just for cooking eggs that you can actually clean easier because cleaning the coffee mug is a little bit difficult. The avocado oil or whatever oil, olive oil, whatever you put in it first helps. And um, keep stuff from sticking to it. And then, let's see, I put that over some, we had some Spanish rice left over. So with some Spanish rice, I did one of the egg, you know, like half of these two scrambled eggs with Spanish rice, some really fresh, nice uh, salsa, pico de gallo salsa, which has got lots of little veggie bits and stuff in it, and tomatoes, real nice, cilantro, all that good stuff. And uh, then some guacamole on top of that, stirred it all up in a bowl and ate it. And then I took the leftover egg and more of that rice and salsa and guacamole and put it in a Ziploc, sandwich size Ziploc bag and uh, it's with me right now. I'm transporting it like a, like a bag of organs back up to work and I'll probably snack on that again uh, this afternoon. I'm trying to think what else I had uh, today. When I do um, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, which I really enjoy, I do... Um, either Genesis bread or Ezekiel bread. I can't remember which one's the bread company. So the bread is hardcore, super sprouted, organic, lots of seeds and, and nuts and stuff like that in it. And super fibery. And then the peanut butter I use is Laura Scudder, which isn't organic or anything like that, but it's just, just peanuts. That's all it's in it is peanuts and salt. And instead of all this hydrogenated jiffy jiff crap. And then, um, I use a, some companies, I forgot the name of it, All Fruit Spread as the jelly. And that way it's got the fruit, little bits of seeds and stuff like that in it, and the fruit skin and, and uh, all that. And um, that peanut butter and jelly sandwich will almost put you to sleep because it's got so it's so heavy with fiber and the peanut butter fat and all that stuff. So it's really, really filling. And I keep that in a fridge at work. So uh, that's my interesting stuff that I've eaten today and coffee lots of coffee <laughs> alright so I think uh, that's it oh the other thing was oh we got a cop up ahead try to get over um, the other thing was when I was um, at the bike shop just a while ago visiting with them about my new bike um, one thing I made sure to ask was hey how do I um, take the stem and the handlebars off for bike transport and I thought I'd ask a bike ask a bike mechanic instead of um, trying to f figure it out myself and butchering it hold on I'm waiting for a car come on dude go just because there's a cop nearby doesn't mean you need to drive five miles per hour the uh, uh, and he said oh it's right here. It's these three bolts on the underside of the handlebars. It takes off the whole stem and everything. And I was like, ah, cool. Okay. I wouldn't have known that right off the bat. <laughs> so uh, that's just a little tip there as well is uh, check with somebody who knows how to do something before you do it, especially if it's new and expensive and you're going to probably wreck it like I was going to. All right. Uh, next episode, I'm not really sure what we got. I'll be lining up guests as always and doing fun stuff it's getting hot here in texas and really soon i'll be on that trek maybe by the next episode and we'll have some fun on it and it'll be a lot of good content so i really appreciate everybody uh supporting the show if you've enjoyed the show and you like all the tips and tricks that uh i hand out on this 
trying to help everybody out, then um, if you want, you can uh, support the show by going over to zentriathlon.com and there's a little donation button or you can go to patreon.com slash zentri or zentriathlon. I don't have it right in front of me right now. It's easy to find and uh, support that way. And uh, yeah, we're good to go. All right, everybody stay safe out there. Work the uphills, cruise the downhills, and keep the rubber side down out.